Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night. This is Extra Time on SENZ. I'm going to It is one minute after seven. You are listening to SENZ. Good evening. Welcome into the program. Mark Watson with you through to 11 o'clock alongside of me, Ben Francis. Looking forward to having your company. Telephone number on the program is 0800 150 You can text the program throughout, right through to 11 on double eight double three. We'd love you to be a part of the program. I'd really love you to be a part of the first hour, which I will get to very shortly. But tonight we will look back on the World Rowing Championships, Martin Cross, uh, commentator that you would have heard on Sky Television, the man who was part of the commentary team when the New Zealand 8 uh, won the Olympic Games gold in Tokyo last year. We'll catch up with Dale Budge. The New Zealand men's baseball team is headed to the United States. They're trying to qualify for the World Baseball Classic. Baseball starting to grow in this country due to the Auckland Tuatara, who will be back in action at the end of November through to February 222-223. Uh, we'll also talk some Q Sports. We'll talk a little bit of surf life saving. We'll have plenty of opinion. And as I said, you can have your say on 0800 150 But great pleasure. Something really, really different this hour. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I get a little frustrated at times about the definition of sport in this country. It's just too narrow. Our media tend to focus on three or four core sports. And some of the real hard bastards, quintessential New Zealanders who sort of fit that mould of Sir Edmund Hillary, you know, where he climbed the top of Mount Everest and just simply said, I knocked the bastard off. That she'll be right attitude. Well, my guest is all of that and more. In fact, talking to him, he's won more than 270 world championship titles. He's arguably the greatest axeman slash woodchopper the world has ever seen. He is from Kawakawa originally, um, Nati Maniapoto and Napuhi Iwi, so strong Māori descent as well. He has received uh, Queen's Honour, the member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Uh, you might be familiar with his son, who's an outstanding basketball player, uh, Ty Winyard played with the Kentucky University there. My guest is Jason Winyard. Now, if you've got a question for Jason, if you're in the rural community, in the city, and as this interview progresses, I'm sure that we will uh, grab your attention. We will hopefully stir the emotions. Feel free to jump on the phone and ask Jason some questions. Jason Winyard, good evening. Welcome. How are you? Good evening, Mark. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Thanks. Great yeah. to be here. Uh, look, I, 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 I'm, I've been around sport a long time, and I genuinely say this um, uh, with a, as the greatest term of endearment, you are a hard bastard. Is that an inherent quality, or is that something you learn? I mean, it's a tough sport you guys are in. It is a pretty tough sport, and I, I think I, I was lucky with the upbringing I had. Dad, Dad was 
one of the toughest men I ever knew. And um, growing up watching him work, his work ethic, and um, w- watching him, you know, wood chopping into his sort of late sixties. Um, yeah, he was he was very inspirational for me, mm. and also my mother, my mother's influence. She was she was extremely strong as well. They they really worked hard back in back in the day, and um, you know, just wanting to provide for the family, and uh, they were great role models for me. And I think um, those two people really um, inspired me. Yeah, see, growing up for me in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, I mean, wood chopping it was on television a lot. Uh, it was always a big part of things like the Easter Show. I know in Australia, the Sydney Easter Show, arguably one of the most prestigious titles to win, along with sheep shearing, uh, very much represented that rural community, represented everything we love about this country. Um, I mean, you're, you're a big guy. I was just saying um, to Stephen Donald there that you wouldn't look out of place in the All Blacks. Why wood chopping? Oh, I guess it was just something I took to at a really young age and, and more so probably going to the contest, the AMP shows, watching Dad, and uh, that sort of got me interested initially. And what, then, sorry, what was your father's name? My, my father's name was Pye Winyard. Yep. Yep. And, um, and so it, when was he at his very best? Excuse my ignorance. Oh, probably before I was born, he he was, he was um, the, yep. you know, he, he chopped really well. He won yep. some world titles yep. um, himself and... He was an extremely powerful axeman. Um, grew up chopping down trees uh, with an axe and a crosscut saw at the age of 12. So he learned how to use the equipment um, from that early age. And then as he grew stronger, and um, you know, when he came into his prime, he was one of the best axemen in, in the country. Mm. And he didn't go out and compete regularly so he he only he was working that hard to provide for his for the family that he couldn't always go out and compete but when he did come out sometimes it would be two years not competing and he'd just come out and, and clean everyone out you know like just win see again I'll go back to the 70s growing up there were some names that I always remember growing up I didn't necessarily fully understand what they did or the until later on and the extent and the impact that they had within their own sport there's always Precious McKenzie I always remember Precious McKenzie in the 1980s a cyclist by the name of Jack Swart but there was also a gentleman by the name of Sonny Bolstad Sonny Bolstad was a huge name in wood chopping in this country and then his son David Bolstad um, what memories do you have of them and, and what was that relationship with your family, was there a relationship? There was, yes. Um, as I said, like Dad wouldn't compete regularly, but um, when he did come out, he he would beat like Sonny Bolstad, and that kind of started a rivalry between my dad and and Sonny Bolstad. And, and you've got to which, have rivalries, don't you? Yeah, yeah. for sure. And that kind of continued um, when I came up and started competing against David, and David Bolstad was one of the one of my greatest rivals um and you know for through most of my wood chopping career and he was a fantastic competitor as well but i think like reflecting on the eras like david and i probably took the sport to a different level because we took it on professionally and um i did it professionally from 96 to 2012 um, David was much the same. He he was professionally involved, competing full time, and uh, so so that actually enabled us to 
totally focus on becoming mm. the best axemen and sawyers that, that we could be, and, and we it took our level way higher than our fathers. Yeah, oh look, it's a natural evolution, isn't it? Yep. I mean, people do it for the different reasons. You said that you did it professionally, and David Bolstead did it professionally as well. For any sport to be professional, there needs to be a market, there needs to be interest, there needs to be an audience uh, for sponsors to get involved to be able to leverage. Where is the hub of professional wood chopping? Yeah, this was is, it here in New Zealand or was it overseas? We all got our start in New Zealand, of course. Um, then we graduated to Australia. But the main source of income for our professional careers came out of USA. So in 96, I, I was a, one of the first to go over and uh, compete in the Steel Timber Sports Series, which was the... Most- which was on ESPN here. I remember watching yeah. it on Sky and I remember watching you guys and being a very proud Kiwi to see you know, the name Bolstead and, and Wynyard. Yeah, it was. Um, it got good coverage. A lot of our national championships ha- received coverage in New Zealand in the earlier days, but it was the, the coverage wasn't on the level of what ESPN took the Steel Timber Sports Series to in the USA. So, of course, we graduated over there. Actually, David took a more, um, like, he went to Australia more, so he, he went out and competed at the Royal Shows throughout Australia, whereas I headed really to USA early early on in my career, and I competed in Canada yeah. and USA. Yeah, I, I want to ask you this. Um, I mean, if you don't, yeah, hopefully you can tell me, but what sort of prize money could you earn in the States? What sort of prize money could you earn in a year? And I'd imagine that probably you'd earn more in endorsements of certain outdoor equipment, but what was that balance? There wasn't huge endorsements. Like people probably saw us on ESPN and thought, well, they must have been, you know, sponsored by Steel and S T I L H. Is it Steel? S T I H L. Yes, which I think sponsors one of the tournaments you're going to go to shortly, which we'll talk about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the huge endorsements weren't weren't really there for our sport, but it was bigger than anything else you could compete for, say, in Australia or New Zealand. So both. David and I sort of gravitated toward that US-Canadian um, circuit. And the great thing was we could go and compete in the summer in the US when it was winter back in New Zealand and then come back and compete Australia and um, mm. New Zealand in, in, in our summertime. So it was, um, it was a great few years. Yeah, I mean, one thing we don't have in this country is scale in regards to population. In America, there is scale. There seems to be a market for everything. There are just so many different um, groups of people. There are just, um, uh, what's the word? There's so many different niches, and sports can be a niche but still have a a really big public following. Uh, I mean, within that woodchopping community, within that outdoors community, how big a names were you in America? I think... At, at the peak of the steel timber sports in USA, we were we were pretty well recognised throughout the USA, and it's like you say that they're great sports fans over there, and oh, because brilliant. the country's so huge, um, like I'd have people coming up to me in airports and saying, "Look, can you can you sign my cap?" Or, you know, I saw you on ESPN, and it was um, it was really eye opening um, compared to. You know, coming from New Zealand and and not hardly getting mm. noticed, even even when you were getting that recognition in the states. So it was um, completely different to anything we were used to, and and it was great. It was um, going back to the prize money question. There really wasn't a huge amount of prize money. I think um, the most I ever won there in a season would have been about eighty thousand. 
And 80,000 US. Yeah. It's still not bad, though, is it? it How was, long's the season? It was pretty good. The season roughly went for three months. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, you, you could make quite a good amount of money in a short amount of time, but you'd have to invest quite a lot of that money back into competing the next year. So it really, when you look back on it, it was... A labour of love. It was. It and, was and if you could break even, if you could break even, great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, how many different categories within wood chopping? I mean, how many, like, is it, you know, you've got the decathlon and athletics. How many different categories? And just talk us through what different events you're involved in, what different events that you've won world championships and what events do make up these series? Yeah, it's, it's, there's quite a broad range of disciplines compared to other sports. So um, primary disciplines in wood chopping are the standing chop, um, which is where the block's mounted in a, and a you vertical go from, stand. And, and then you chop one side, run around, yeah, hit the exactly. other side. I think most of us have seen that, or most of an older generation maybe seen it. Yep. Um, so that's the standing chop, and then you've got the underhand chop, which is where you cut footholds on the on the top of the block, and you stand on the top of the block, yeah. and cut each side, cut a scarf from each side. Um, then there's soaring disciplines. Uh, there's a single soaring, which is one person, uh, double soaring, which is two two men or a male and a female, uh, or two females. So there's a range of disciplines in the soaring, and then there's also chainsaw disciplines, um, kind of starting at your stock production chainsaw and moving on to the open modified um, chainsaws. Yeah, that was the question I was going to ask you. How much of the equipment you use is stock standard and how much of it is customised and probably wouldn't be used in an everyday situation? Oh, most of the equipment wouldn't be used in an everyday situation, um, apart from the stock chainsaws that they provide for the competition, like the Steel Timber Sport Series. But you must have parameters in terms of what you can do with your equipment in terms of design? There really isn't too many um, rules uh, other than, you know, if it's an axe, you can. there's no weight limit. Um, you can have as long a handle as you want, but the parameters around it, you're trying to make the most amount of speed with, with the right amount of power. So, um, Is that balance between weight? Exactly. And, yeah, that ability between weight, sharpness, and all those other things. Exactly. So... Like to cut a block really quickly, you need to put least least amount of hits in it with the quickest strike rate. So um, you can go and put a long handle on an axe and and have a huge amount of power, but because you can't develop that strike rate, it's not possible to do that. So there's happy medium between. Yeah, everything. look, it's not dissimilar in cycling. What people won't realise in cycling, you've got crank length, so the arm yeah. that attaches to the front chain ring and the pedal now. Smaller chain ring, you can turn it over a lot quicker. Yep. Longer chain ring, you can produce more power, but you actually actually end up burning a lot more glycogen, and your cadence will generally be a little bit lower. Yep. And so it is about finding that balance. But often it is, and I'll ask you this: often you base that on your own sort of mechanics. You base that for on sure. your own plumbing. And is that a similar thing for you? I mean, you're quite exactly. a tall guy. As I said, I don't think you, you certainly wouldn't look at look out of place in the All Blacks. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. So the rules. The, like you, you basically find the best fit for your own body makeup that can allow you to develop that, um, you know, the most amount of power with the quickest cadence, basically. Mm. So, um, so you tailor your own equipment to suit that. And there's also preferences with, uh, like, 
the handle sizes, how, how, the, how the grip feels on the handle. Yeah, and, and clearly the axiot itself is where the most of the weight is because uh, what, what are we, steel, are we? Yep, it's high carbon steel. High carbon steel? Yeah, so um, that that holds the, the best cutting edge for our competitions. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you this, from when your father was competing to say when Sonny Bolstad and those guys were competing, how much of an evolution has there been in the technology of the axes in terms of the material, in terms of the metal? been huge has yeah. it yeah it's been huge and, uh, and that's carried right through to what you pick up say if you're going to go and buy a top end axe in a say a mitre 10 or wherever um it's it, like in formula one a lot of the formula one it's about development and then taking what they've learned in f1 and putting it into everyday cars is it similar it's not really because the properties required for an everyday axe so um a very basic like the blades are much thicker. The steel doesn't have to be that high quality because of the thickness of the blades. Whereas we're kind of pushing the limit of what the steel is capable of. So if you can imagine it like this, we're swinging like three and a half kg axe heads. And these blades are sharpened to sometimes 14 degrees, which is which is really, really thin. And you're putting all your power behind that blade into, into a log at an angle and you're expecting that steel to hold up with all that force that's been applied to the axe head and the forces going on that blade are incredible like um, these these axe heads have to be forged they have to be made from high quality tool steel and they have to be expertly heat treated and tempered and yeah, so we're right at the, the, the edge of what that steel is okay, capable so how, of. Okay, so who customises your equipment for you? You must have a sponsor out there. You must have a company that does it for you. Feel free. There's only a few companies in the world that manufacture axes of a high enough quality. And we're, we're really lucky in New Zealand. Um, tuatahi Racing Axes and Saws, they make the Where finest. are Tuatahi based? They're in Masterton. And they've been uh, making high quality axes and saws for... I think close on fifty years. Do they now. do it the old-fashioned way? Yep, they 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 have a, um, a forge hammer and they buy the in the steel. They buy the steel in billets, mm. and they forge all the axe heads out and then grind them down to size and heat treat and temper in in house. So they're a pretty amazing company. It is coming up to nineteen minutes after seven. You're listening to SENZ, our greatest ever axeman, uh, wood chopper. Uh, outdoorsman Jason Winyard is my guest in studio. He's heading off to the United States, uh, heading off to Gothenburg uh, very shortly in Sweden to try and win his 10th steel, what do they call it? The A Still Timber Sports World Championship. So, Still Timber Sports World Championships, which has never been done as a remarkable achievement. Uh, Gothenburg, just out of curiosity, is where Sir John Walker broke. Four minutes fifty for the mile back in nineteen seventy-five. So well, ho- hopefully, hopefully, there's a little bit of a, 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 a kindred sort of New Zealand spirit there, and all of those wonderful things are passed on to you. Uh, look, if you've got a, chest, uh, a question for Jason, telephone number is oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one. Anything to do with wood chopping, um, the outdoors, that sort of whole rural sport, we'd love to hear from you. Oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one. You can text us here on the program too on double eight double three. 
24 minutes after 7, you are listening to SENZ, our greatest ever axeman, woodsman, outdoorsman, Jason Winyard in studio. Son, of course, Ty Winyard, these days playing for the Taranaki Mountaineers in the National Basketball League and went to the Commonwealth Games as part of the New Zealand 3-on-3 basketball team. Uh, if you've got a question for Jason, 0800 150 you can text us here on 8833. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, always knew the name Sonny Bolstad. Um, and then I've, I guess I've always had a little bit of an affinity uh, for wood chopping. And of course, Jason Winyard, David Bolstead used to watch them uh, on Sky via ESPN um, with the various events they'd have in the United States. So, look, if you're just curious, uh, you've got any question, feel free. Love to hear from you. Uh, J- Jason, so let's talk about what is coming up in Gothenburg on the what 26th of October, did you say? Uh, 28th of 28th October. 28th of October, yep. So you're heading off for what? Yep, um, the World Championship. Um, still Timber Sports World Championship will be held in Gothenburg this year on the 28th of October. So it's a, a two-day event. Um, on the 28th of October, there'll be um, a world team relay. and Sorry, on the 27th and then the 28th, there'll be an individual world championship. Do we have a New Zealand team? Yep, we have a um, six-man New Zealand team. And who are those other members, if you can, off the top of your head? <laughs> No? You're going to catch me now. No, no, it's all right. We no, can no, write I, I do know. This. Yeah. It, it's Adam Lowe, um, Shane Jordan, Jack Jordan, Nathan McDonald, myself, and we're taking our rookie over for an experience who is David Bolstad's son, Morgan Bolstad. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, That's so wonderful. So, Sonny David and now the young son. Yep. Oh, that, that is uh, simply superb. Is there a danger, though, doing that team event the day before that it affects your individual performance the next day? Pretty pretty tough, mate. You knocked it on the head there. So, so um, you, do you have to make a decision on that? It, it's always been that way, and it's always been a bit of a conundrum. And I think it's probably got tougher as as the ages is you kind don't of recover caught as up on me. Yeah. yeah, and so I've I've sort of developed a few different recovery methods, like um, ice bathing right after, and yep. you know trying to hydrate correctly. Um, do Do you set your training up though? That so you. If you say let's talk about let's talk about periodization, let's use athletic. You have your base work, your strength work, and your speed work. Yep. Do you have some of the principles that apply to that, where you sort of do more, maybe loading, but not so much intensity, and then you start to sort of bring the power and the shorten up your sessions, but they're a lot more intense. Definitely, um, and I've got a I've got a great trainer. His name's Adam Story, and he um, sets up all my training program and. Um, that's exactly how we do it. And now, so the fact that you're going to have three days of intensity, do you start showing your body in training Definitely. what's going to happen? So you'll do yep. three intense days and then say, right, now I you know, I did this today, got to go home, got my post-training or post-racing uh, protocols in place. I've got the next day, wake up, got my um, pre-competition protocols. Yep. And so by the time you get there, your body's sort of familiar with what it's going to experience. Yep, exactly. And you, you have to do it like that, otherwise you... You know, you set yourself up to fail. So well, you can't train one way and then expect to race another way, can you? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm in the toughest discipline in the team, which is the single single buck or the single saw, and it's basically one one man on an end of a crosscut saw. Um, it only lasts for probably sixteen, well, thirteen to sixteen seconds, but you're putting all out effort in that in that short amount of time, and you have to do it. Because uh, it's a knockout competition in the teams event, you have to do it six times mm. in order to, you know, get to the final and and hopefully win the final. So 
the rest period gets less and less as as the event progresses. So I think from the semi-final to the final, there's only um, probably 15 minutes between mm. um, those two. So it, it's pretty tough. And then, of course, the individual competition is the next day. So it's really important mm. that you get all those um, that protocol right before you know beforehand. New Zealand. I mean, you've won so many world titles. You and David Bolstead sort of having carried. Um, the New Zealand flag. Does New Zealand have that reputation when you turn up? That is the team to beat. All the Kiwis are here. We're in a world of trouble. No, I think we've we've earned respect of the other competitors, but um, we've kind of been back and forth with Australia for quite a few years, and um, I think Australia's just edged us out on winning the team event by two times since its inception. So. So you didn't tell me that when you said you wanted to come and do this interview. <laughs> I might have changed we, we my mind. Oh, I might stuff, have changed my know? mind if I'd have known you'd been beaten by Australia, Jason. <laughs> Can't you see my T-shirt? Says seconds on the other team, mate. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that, mate. That's why I was keeping it quiet. But uh, <laughs> they are—they're um, probably the, the top nation in, in wood yeah, chopping at yeah. the moment. They've got some fantastic young competitors, and uh, they're really tough to beat when you get them in a team uh, in any sport, as you know. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, really, really doing some amazing things in wood chopping. Their, their competitors are breaking records, and um, they've just had their national championship, and it's um, it was a fantastic, fantastic event with a, a couple of world records broken. And um, yeah, the talent on offer over there is is pretty, pretty, um, pretty special. So it'll be good to get up against them and give them a good. Uh, Good hurry up. And now we just had a text in and um, we did talk about David Bolstead and you competing against him and you don't have Agassi without Sampras. Uh, but just someone wanting to know, have you ever teamed up with David in the USA? Definitely. I won um, several team championships with David and uh, they were they were really memorable because we, um, you know, when you're rivals, it, it's kind of, you know, you, you wake up every day and you're thinking, you know, what do I have to do to try and get over this guy because he, he was fantastic. He was one of the best technicians with an axe that I've ever seen. Hmm. I, I want to talk about that then because you've talked about technicians. So I want to talk about the technical component because a lot of people just look at that and think, hey, you've just got to be a big mongrel with plenty of power and you're going to break it. But from my understanding of sport and every sport that I've been involved in, when you break it down, there is a technical component to it. How technical is chopping? Yeah, it's very, very technical. If you want to deliver that axe in exactly the right spot um, at a precise angle and then back that up within a millimetre of the last hit. It takes a lot of practice and um, a lot of understanding of how to use your body. Um, it, it's very, very technical. And, and David was a master at, at using his body correctly and he was a master with accuracy and angles and um, the correct equipment to but, use but as well. good technique, good equipment, you can yep. serve energy, can't you? And in your game, exactly. it's about, you know, yeah, you want to try and keep money in the bank for as long as you can. You don't want to have to burn too many matches too early. Yeah, it, it's all, like, compared to triathlon, it, it's really, really short burst. So, 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 so yeah, it's not an endurance event. It's more no. of a, what do we call it? It's... it's um, Fast twitch. It's all high, it's all it's all glycogen, isn't it? It's just yep, bang. it's all mostly anaerobic. Yeah. and like when we're going for longer than sixty seconds, we really start to like really die because our bodies aren't used to that transition period, 
and you, um, the 60 second mark seems to be the threshold between mm. anaerobic and anaerobic and that's where you really feel pain but most of our um, disciplines are over within 20 to 30 seconds so you, you know you're putting all out for that short amount of time but once you start getting towards a minute, you start getting the ugly face, the war face on, you're sort of breathing through your eyelids, trying to get the <laughs> it, it oxygen. It seems like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah. you're transitioning and um, your body really struggles with that and there's a lot of pain. But I, I don't know how you guys do what you do like oh, with triathlon. That's... No, but look, it's like anything, isn't it? Show your body in training. You don't wake up just one day. It's a natural progression over a long period yeah. of time. I can tell you from the likes of the Cameron Browns, the Hamish Carters, everyone will look across at every other sport and go, how do you do that? We turn up and watch you compete. We go, how do you do that? And I think the reality is it just comes down to passion, desire, and a hell of a lot of hard work, yeah. learning how to lose before you learn how to win. For sure. And, um, you know, I'll say it, the greatest ingredient you can have is passion and desire. And sometimes the only way that you deal uh, the only way you truly test somebody's passion and desire is put them in an adverse situation yeah. and that's what I want to talk about next I want to take a break but I do want to come back and look at the injury side of it I know in recent times you have had a lot of adversity as you've got older you've picked up a few more injuries yeah. so I do want to address that next um, Jason Winyard um, our greatest ever axman woodsman my outdoorsman is my guest in studio. Telephone number is 0800 150 you can text us here on double eight double three. It is 22 and a half minutes away from 8 o'clock. You're listening to SEN. Just a reminder that the voice of international rowing, former Olympic rowing gold medalist out of the UK, Martin Cross, is going to join us on the programme after 9 to talk the Rowing World Championships. We'll talk some baseball, some surf lifesaving and some cue sports between 8 and 9. We will also open the lines and give you your opportunity to have your say. Telephone number here is 0800 150 811. You can text us here on double eight double three. This is our very, very cool guest in studio enjoying this. We've got our greatest ever axeman woodchopper, and that is Jason Winyard. Um, boy, I tell you what, he's won it all. Uh, more than 270 world championships. Remarkable, remarkable. If you've got a question for Jason, again, 0800 150 You can text us here on double eight double three. Jason, um, I talk about that. We spoke earlier about, you know, everyone says, oh, I'm so passionate about it. I really, really want this. And then, you know, they turn up to training late or they miss sessions. But one of the real things is when things aren't going well. I always say you've got to learn how to lose before you learn how to win. But things such as injury come along and really test that mental resolve. Um, how much adversity have you had in your career? I think my wood chopping career started out with adversity. Um, I really, I really wasn't that good when I started out, and um, my my first ever wood chop it was terrible, and that stuck with me for for years and years. It still sticks with me now how bad it was, and. I remember competing in a, in a boys' chop in Mamaku, and it was the first time I'd ever um, been in competition. The other boys were, were pretty good with an axe. They'd been practising at home with Dad, and, and I never really um, got the chance to practise with Dad. So I, I was third out of the three, and miles behind, I fell off the block and got back up and finished it. But that one experience kind of set the stage for me just to want to be better, and that really hasn't changed throughout my wood chopping career. Um, I've always just tried to improve myself, and 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 I never ever wanted to let that happen happen to me again. Mm. Um, to be embarrassed like that. So. Okay. What about injury? And I know you've gone through a lot of injury in recent times, which I do want to talk about. Um, and you've had to work through that. Yep. Yeah, um, I'm 48 now, and um, 
I think people look at me as a bit of a dinosaur in the sport, but um, because I've been competing for so long, I, I think um, arthritis has crept in, in in my later years. So I had um, hip replacement in 2020 on my left hip, um, and that was I suffered with that for probably three or four years before that. I was having cortisone injections to get me um, through the last few world championships and I won the last world championship in the timber sport series was in 2017 and I took that out it was in Norway I think and um, after that things things got really really tough Um, I was I had stem cell treatment in both hips and both hips were really bad with arthritis my right hip needed one stem cell treatment and it's been good ever since uh, the left wouldn't take um, so I ended up getting the replacement in, in 2020 after uh, multiple treatments in the in the left hip that failed so that was a really really tough time for me I I was really trying to retain my own joints because I still wanted to compete at a high level because stem cell treatments a relatively new form of medicine isn't yep. it but you found it very effective it was really I mean for the right hip, it just solved it straight away, like it cured it straight away. The pain was gone. And you got to remember, I was having cortisones to get me yeah. on, on, you know, able to compete. So it was a dramatic change from having so, to have that. So to, stem cell treatment was life-changing? It was, very much so. But, but again, I just want to say that to anyone too. I mean, you need to consult your doctor, don't you? You need to get Definitely. the options on it, don't you? Definitely. Because I also, I also read that it doesn't necessarily work for everyone either. That's the trouble with it. It... it like with me, I, I really had a 50 percent success rate with it because it, it worked on the right side, but it didn't work on the left side, and that's the whole problem with it. People don't really know why it doesn't take. When you look at the X-rays, both hips looked exactly the same. Um, you know, cartilage, cartilage loss, bone on bone, but for some reason the right took mm. and mm. the left didn't. So, so how, how did you discover stem cell? Did you do some reading on it? Did somebody approach you? I mean, how did how did how did you go down that path? Well, I, I kind of exhausted my options with cortisone um, because I had so many shots and I was looking at natural treatments and I was looking for someone to do PRP, which is um, um, when they take your blood, they draw yeah, your blood. Yeah, yeah. I, I spin I, it in I a centrifuge. I know a few triathletes do that, yep. Yeah, so um, very We're similar. not talking blood doping, we're actually talking treatment for injury. Yep. It sounds okay. like blood it's doping. But it's eh? not, yeah. So it's, it's platelet-rich plasma, which yep. they, they take the platelets out of your blood and then they re-inject them into, you know, the injury sites where, where yep. the arthritis is. So I was looking for someone to do that to get me through another world championship in 2018. And I found Regen Cellular. They were down in Queenstown. So I, I visited them. Sorry, Regen Cellular? Yeah, yep. Regen Cellular. So people can Google that if you're maybe experiencing arthritis or just... But hey, again, you don't have to go down the path, but if you are just wanting to maybe explore those options, because I know how debilitating... I've got friends, I know how debilitating it can be, and you're just desperate to find a solution. Yeah, definitely. And, and I was, and um, so I had the PRP treatment. It, it got me through the 2018 championship. Um, world Championship, and then we went down the road of actual full-on stem cell treatment um, because I, I didn't want to get a replacement joint. I, I thought that, you know... Well, once it's gone, it's gone, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly, and it possibly could have been the end of my career. So uh, that's that's kind of why I looked at 
those alternatives and um, really happy that I did because um, the right hip's been fantastic. It's uh, it's amazing, and I, I'm still kind of working with the left hip because it's it's actually resurfacing. Um, so I, I got the better of the options with the hip replacement, but it, it's still not as good as the right side. So I, I, my advice to anyone is retain your own joints if you possibly can. And if stem cell treatment is an option for you, then please look into it. Because you've had it in the shoulder too, haven't you? I have had it in the shoulder as well. So I got um, the, both hips going okay in, like by 2020. And, um, and then my, I had trouble with my shoulder. Mm. Um, so I got a stem cell treatment yeah. in, in that. And the other thing too, and we were just talking about that off air because we're just sort of talking more about sort of endurance sport and base training. And you were saying that you're doing more sort of base work now, doing sort of more endurance type training. And you are also discovering the real benefits of that, just doing a lot more but at a lot lesser intensity. Yeah, that, that side of my training has um, really improved my ability to – to come through mm. at the end of the competitions, especially and and with timber sports, mm. um, you know that's a major thing because the last three disciplines are actually worth mm. they're, they're worth more points than the rest. So, yeah, Jason, sitting here, I, you can sort of see a little bit of emotion in the face, just how difficult it has been with these injuries in recent times. I mean, this is your sense of self worth, this is your sovereignty, this is your identity, and there's that fear that it may be taken away from you. you might not be able to get back. You're not quite ready to retire yet. So. I want to give you the opportunity. Who are those people that you want to thank? Who are those people that have helped you through this? Oh, there's been so many, Mark. Um, but definitely Regen Cellular. Mar- Marcel Noble is, a, is the owner of Regen Cellular, and they've been so supportive. Um, there's been a lot of people. Uh, Adam Story, he's, he's been my trainer for, I think, the last eight, eight or nine years, and he's been brilliant, like... Um, He's enabled me to, yeah, win the last few world championships and and get myself back um, back up for a tenth. So, I'm really thankful to these people. Um, yeah, it, it's tough when I talk about injuries because it's kind of like I don't know how you sort of set your mind, but um, I kind of want to push that stuff to the side because I'm I'm aiming at this goal. Oh, you know, absolutely. So, um, yeah. it, it's really tough to talk about the arthritis and and what I have been through, but. I'll just give you an outline of of what I've done to myself. Like, I've burst um, discs in my back twice. Um, I've had the arthritis. I've had a hip replacement, and then I've had trouble with the right shoulder. So, um, there's been a myriad of um, hurdles that I've had to climb. So, every time I compete now, it's um, I'm so thankful that I can get out there and still compete. And um, and that's it for me. Like. Um, when I was going through all these issues with the hips and stuff, um, I felt like I wasn't done, you know. So um, this for me is just, it's nothing but personal satisfaction and trying to finish, like trying to end my career on my own terms. That, that, that's all this is about for me. Um, so, yeah, very thankful to the people that have got me back. Um, thankful to Still New Zealand, um, Region Cellular, Broad Tech, um, Adam Story, yeah. Have a think really about it. We've still got one more commercial break, and then we've still got about three or four minutes. So, Jason Winyard, my guest in studio, our greatest ever axman, Woodsman. Oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one is the number. You can text us here on double eight double three. We'll come back with more. 
It is eight minutes away from eight. Uh, Axman, one of our greatest ever, if not the greatest ever, one of our most underrated athletes, certainly just one, one hard bastard, is Jason Winyard. He's my guest in studio. Uh, Jason, you work a full-time job outside of being an Axman, or are you full-time? I do. I, I work for Still New Zealand as a still technician, and um, I've held that position since 2012. So. Yeah. yeah, it's not a bad thing, is it, having balance in training? Like, I, from my experience, is if I had a bad day training but I had nothing else then I life sucked where once I got a part-time job or I started studying if I had a bit of a bad day I could still sort of bank it focus on something else and then wake up the next day and hope things were a bit better I'm just is balance a good thing definitely yeah um when I was sort of full-time competing that 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 was challenging um so basically I I started the career with still because I'd built a relationship with them in 2006 and they sponsored me in the US uh, competition um, and the the rules changed around entry into the US competition in 2012 so they made it US only competitors for, for that series and how that, American that was how American <laughs> and and we I can't blame the US and and often I've, I've it's come across wrong because it was a global decision um, for each country to have their own national championship and then all the com- like the best of the national champion um, championship competitors compete at the mm. world championship um, so that was the, the global um, sort of direction that that still wanted to take with the competition um, but effectively in 2012 I, I didn't have that um, income um, possibility from competing in the state so um, I was looking for a full-time job and, and it just happened that mm. a technician was retiring at that time so I built a career with Still, did an apprenticeship. Any, any other sponsors? Um, Still's been my main sponsor yep. for um, since 2006 so um, that's that's I'm really thankful for that. And yeah, talking about balance, um, it, it brought us it's a whole different challenge like holding, holding down the... Um, the day job, and then still trying to compete at a at a world class level, that was um, really challenging for me. I had to really structure my training. Puts more um, urgency though, isn't it? it? I mean, it's it, like it, anything. If you've got all day to train, you take all day to train. It, it seemed to be a bit like that too. Like I'd put eight hours a day into yeah. you know an hour into mm-hmm. each discipline. But I, it just finally, we've only got less than a minute. But I just sort of sense you're enjoying it more now than you've ever enjoyed it. I really am. I'm, I'm enjoying the journey, the the preparation. Um, Whereas I, I hated the training when I was younger. I, I really hated it. But um, a lot of that reason was because I, I trained really tough. Like I, I set up a whole lot of blocks and, and chopped them and, and sawed them. And that was really tough on the body. So that wasn't enjoyable. But now I'm training more scientifically and, and it's it's really quite stimulating. Well, well Jason Winyard, privilege and a pleasure to have you in studio. All the very best uh, coming up on the 28th of October and the day before in the teams at the uh, Still World Championships in Gothenburg in Sweden. Thanks very much, Mark. Been great talking with you. And we'll make sure we stay in touch and keep updating us. Yep. You're an inspiration. 48 years of age, still an elite athlete, still got passion and desires, learn how to lose before he learns how to win. And don't forget, do consult your doctor, but do, if you're struggling with things, do check out the whole sort of stem cell as potentially uh, an, an option rather than maybe getting joints replaced. Hey, you can only ask the question. It is one minute after eight. Hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, Jason Winyard. We'll get that up on Twitter. We'll get that up on social media as well. X-Man extraordinaire. Um, if you only picked up the last part of it or you maybe 
caught the first part of it. We will put that up for you. Uh, ben Francis with me. Ben, um, you're, I know you listen to that intently because you're sort of, in all seriousness, delving into some darts and it's sort of a sport that you're wanting to try and sort of progress in. Um, what did you take out of it? What, did, what can you relate to that Jason was talking about? Uh, firstly, uh, what I just want to say that was fantastic, and it's really good getting these guys in the studio. You know, we had Peter Lester in on a, on Monday night, and having these guys in for a full hour, really going in depth, is really fantastic. But the bit I guess that took away the most was hearing him talk about his first event competing, and said that uh, I've got the note in front of me. He said the fact that he didn't do so well that was kind of his drive to do a bit more like tr- try harder I don't, yeah so so i think what he was saying is i just don't want to experience that feeling again yeah i need to be better that sucked life wasn't good even though he's probably only 12 at the time but uh, yeah it, it, it's a wonderful wonderful psyche to have isn't it even yeah. from such a young age yeah got to know that his first event was so bad it still haunts him to this day says he wanted to make him better and that was one thing which i really took away uh, from hearing that, of course, I spoke about my, my darts on the weekend. It wasn't the best I, I could do. And uh, hearing that bit of advice, you know, is really good. And just to quickly tell you, I kind of kind of took that on last night. I got home last night around midnight and I thought, I'm gonna, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice my darts. And I kind of... I kind of worked, I spent about an hour working on it and I played a practice game and I had my best average I've ever recorded across a certain distance. So I was I kind of, it was quite relatable. Yeah, um, I'll tell you what, sitting here, people won't realise this, he, he was actually very emotional. He genuinely was. Like, it points there towards the end. He was actually struggling to hold it together. This means the world to him. He didn't maybe always appreciate it. He's still got the desire. He's still got the drive. As I said, this is his sense of self-worth. This is what you identify with. And he wants to go out on his own terms. And I, I sort of sense that really the last sort of three or four years have been incredibly difficult with the arthritis um, and that, you know, he's finally found some answers. He's finally got himself in a good place. Uh, so look, I, and I think it's reminded everybody out there, I think it is Mental Health Week this week. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that um, he's, he certainly didn't, didn't say that he suffered from mental health issues, but I think sometimes that's just, when you're a lead athlete, uh, you're going to fall into that. You're going to fall into that hole anyway to some degree. But it's just nice to hear that even the best guys in the world are fallible, or even the best guys in the world and best girls in the world in their chosen sports go through the very same emotions as we do, go through the same life experiences and have to deal with it. Uh, too often with sports people, Ben, you know, there's too often with sports people, we only ever see them winning. We only ever remember their great moments. I, I talk about Hamish Carter, what Hamish won, I think, 11 maybe World Cup races and he clearly won the Olympics but the guy started probably in 300 triathlons did we hear about the others no, and why we didn't. didn't we perhaps hear about the others because he probably lost a hell of a lot of races probably didn't finish a hell of a lot of races probably questioned his um, very existence and his very love and his very desire for the sport at times yeah, well, I guess it's like with any athlete, whether it's individual or team sports, you never hear of those those days where you're out playing on the club or whatever or just doing those smaller events and where you didn't have your good days. And it, it was really, he was really open and honest, which was really good. And I, I could hear that emotion towards the end of the interview and it made it riveting stuff. Okay, now I'll get you to get Dale Budge up because we are going to talk some baseball. Yes, the Diamond Blacks. Now, I, I, 
I love my baseball. I sort of got involved with the Tuatara two or three years ago by default, finding myself being the commentator. I've got to say, pretty green to start with by the end of the season. I was actually reasonably happy with the way I was calling it and um, getting more and more comfortable with some of the subtleties of it. So since then, I have had an invested interest in the sport and I'm fascinated by it. And when you commentate baseball, uh, like Q Sports, like a lot of other sports, you start to realise just the little subtleties. You start to realise just what's involved and why it is so appealing in countries like the United States, Japan, and Korea. So, uh, with this news, with this New Zealand men's team heading off overseas to compete, uh, we've got Dale Budge up. Um, Dale Budge, good evening. Evening, Mike. Okay, let's talk about the Diamond Blacks. As we speak, they are on a plane. They're heading off to the World Baseball Classic qualifiers in Panama. Tell us firstly a little bit about this tournament and ultimately what is what is the goal? So the World Baseball Classic, Mark, is essentially the, the World Cup of, of baseball. Um, it, generally, it was supposed to happen every four years. The COVID situation around the world um, has, has changed that. So the original tournament was supposed to be in 2020. It got delayed and postponed and pushed back and yeah, now it's going to roll early next year before the Major League Baseball season starts, sort of March next year. Um, New Zealand's been <clears throat> to the last two qualifying series, uh, well, through the qualifying series for the last two tournaments, so 2016 and 2012. Um, 20, 2012, they actually went very close. They got to the final of the qualifying tournament, winner-takes-all game, lost to what was Chinese Taipei, who were um, you know, one of the powerhouses powerhouses of world baseball for some reason they'd had a, a poor run of full bleeding into it and didn't qualify automatically and had to go through the qualification process and uh, New Zealand ran into a very good side there um, but, but did well to get to the final 2016 was a slightly easier route um, it was it was held in Australia that tournament um, New Zealand probably didn't put their best foot forward in, in that campaign um, weren't as successful as they had been the, the previous one um, we don't really know where it sits for, for, for this tournament mark so there are two qualifying tournaments around the world the top I think top 12 nations qualify automatically for it and the uh, remaining four spots are determined by these two qualification processes we saw uh, in Europe last week two teams booked their spots uh, including Great Britain with um, Ken Blackstone who played with the Auckland Tuatara um, the last time that uh, we were in action he qualified with, uh, with Great Britain to go to the World Baseball Classic proper in March next year New Zealand goes to Panama for this tournament six nations Double elimination. So basically, you lose two games, you come home. It's that simple. And New Zealand kick off the tournament with the first game against Brazil. Um, and I think that, doing my math correctly here, it'll be Saturday, New Zealand time. Mm. Yeah, what do we know about those other countries like Brazil? Is it an emerging sport? Are they a little bit more established than us, perhaps? Uh, hard to know, to be honest, Mark. You know, Pakistan, a little bit of an unknown quantity. Um, you know, such as the nature, you only need to get it right. One, you have one really good pitcher who who, um, you know, you come up against a, a pitcher that's going to keep you in check, that, that can determine a, a winner or a loss, that's simple. So hard to hard to gauge a lot of the teams. I think Panama will be a very good side, the home the home team. To me, it's it's really a battle to see who plays them in the final. Um, you know, Brazil, I think, you know, they're in a similar position to New Zealand, not well-renowned for baseball, uh, probably don't have a, a lot of household names or players that you can even find a lot of statistics on. Um, through the, the American system. Um, New Zealand's roster on paper, I think, probably stronger than it has been for the previous two tournaments. Um, but then the, the flip side to that is a lot of the New Zealand players just haven't been playing baseball. They had a very limited summer last year with COVID. There was essentially done the year before. So a lot of these players, um, you know, come come into the tournament without 
a whole lot of a whole lot of baseball. I'll be relying very heavily on their American based contingent, and that sort of comprises maybe a third or third to a half of the roster. Yeah, let's run just through the uh, 28-man squad because I sort of run through it and there seems to be a lot of experience and also a little bit of youthful exuberance. Um, you look uh, you, you look certainly at the outfielders, the likes of Andrew Mark, Chris Richards, the American who's been become a naturalised Kiwi, downtown Max Brown who plays for the Auckland Tuatara, Tawira Bishop, again, very good in the catching role. He's been with the Auckland Tuatara. The likes of Elliot Johnston, Jimmy Boyce, both on professional contracts in the States. What have you made of the overall 28-man squad? Oh, look, I, I, say, I think it's probably on paper a better, a stronger squad than they have sent the previous two tournaments. Having said that, it, you know, I, I qualify that by saying there's, there's been not a lot of baseball for a lot of those players. You know, you talk about Andrew Mark to Witter Bishop. Um, you know, Max Brown hasn't been playing in the States. So, you know, those guys are going to be well short of, of a gallop. They're going to be um, you know, coming in cold without a whole season behind them. Sometimes that can help. You know, certainly pitching, it, it can help because your arm's fresh. You haven't had the rigours of a full season, but um, yeah, there's a little bit of a, uh, a concern there that just can they get the, the guys in shape? Um, they're currently in America at the moment preparing in Arizona or the majority of that roster. A few little issues around um, access to players that are with major league clubs. So uh, the likes of Elliot Johnson, who signed with the New Mets, is not available. They're, they're not allowed to, to use him until they get to Panama. Um, Elliot himself, you know, pitching wise, I think there's a there's some some raw potential there. Ben Thompson, who signed with the Tuatara, Elliot Johnston, uh, we, we know a little bit about him. There's some other players there that I have to admit, Mark, I don't know a great deal about, but if they're in the American college system that uh, qualify to play for New Zealand on on um, birthright and, and the like, they haven't uh, necessarily spent time here. But that's that's basically how Max Brown came about. Um, you know, he was he was for all intents and purposes American. Grew up in America, had a, a Kiwi father and ties to New Zealand and was eligible. And you know, once he realised that, saw the opportunity, not only did he, did he take it and be part of the, the key, the Diamond Blacks campaign, but he found a, a home in New Zealand. He's, he's got ties now that will connect him here for forever. And um, so there's it's some quite cool stories around uh, some of that, but there are a number of players in that squad that I can't tell you a whole lot about. Mm. Yeah, big opportunity too for Scott Campbell, who is the head coach of this Diamond Blacks team. Scott, the probably the music, well, the closest the New Zealanders come in terms of actually playing in the major leagues. Dan Tan, who's uh, done his apprenticeship in the Auckland Tuatara, and then Darren Bragg, who's an American who has actually played for the Boston Red Sox, who, who's what in a hitting hitting coaching capacity. Yeah, and then, then some other players, uh, some other ex major league players there in that coaching staff, like Brian Matus, who was a. Yeah, very talented major league player, Brian Anderson as well. You know, there, there's some there's some plenty of experience in that coaching staff. Scott Campbell doesn't have a, a great deal of experience in terms of his, his coaching resume, but you said it. He is New Zealand's single most successful baseball player that we produced. He was within a whisker of of playing in the majors. Had a you know, I think that career was all panned out, and then injury unfortunately curtailed it. And, Never quite made it to the to the bigs. He is he's a talent. He knows baseball inside and out. He's a good appointment. Um, yeah, you know, I think he'll do a great job as as the Diamond Blacks manager. And he's got support around him from from people that sort of have been in big game experience. Darren Bragg played over a decade in the majors. You know, he's a quietly spoken guy. He doesn't sort of command the limelight a lot these days. Um, but what he does say to to the players within the team is well respected. I know the Tuatara players that have worked with with Darren before hold him in the absolute highest regard. So. Um, Scott will have plenty of experience there and, 
and um, about supporting him. You talked about Dan Tan. He knows the New Zealand program inside and out. He knows all of these players. You know, he's in touch, probably has a better idea of um, what's available to New Zealand in the American system um, better than, than anyone else. So, yeah, looking forward to seeing how some of them go. Obviously, wearing my, my Tuatara hat, we're, we're very interested to see how players perform. There are still contract spots potentially up for grabs here. Um, for the for the upcoming ABL season, so um, the, the Tuatara contingent will be watching closely and cheering the team on for sure. Yeah, are there any sort of um, I guess controversial or notable admissions in this team that you thought maybe should have got picked? Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean, look, there's subjective decisions. I, as I said, Dan Tan has a really good understanding of of all players in, in New Zealand and the system. He's worked in that area for a very long time has a better handle on it than, than any of us. Uh, look, there are players that um, that we, we like. Clayton Campbell, for for example. Clayton Campbell Jr. has signed the Tuatara. I, I thought that was that sort of raised a few eyebrows. I'm not sure whether there was perhaps Clayton's not available or the, the Tigers didn't want him playing there. I'm, I'm not close enough to know uh, the, the reasons for his omission. The, the big one, I guess, is Kyle Grigoski. So uh, Kyle obviously has played with the, the Tuatara the last um, couple of campaigns. He's he, you know he's a Kiwi, but he was born in Australia, so he qualifies to play for Australia. And the opportunity to represent the Australian side who get automatic qualification to go to that WBC is a very big carrot for someone like Kyle, who's knocking on the door of of establishing his own major league career. And by by sort of turning down, I guess, the opportunity to play for for New Zealand, he has the opportunity to play for Australia and. Um, I think we could all understand the, the reasons for doing that. I'm sure if all things were equal, he'd be wearing the black as he has done before. Uh, but given that Australia goes straight through and it guaranteed that spot, um, yeah, I think we all understand why, he, why he's made himself available for Australia and we certainly wish him well. Yeah, uh, look, I, I, I wouldn't be me, Dale, without bringing this up. We've got a couple of man but grammar old boys on this team. <laughs> we've, got, you we've got young Ayrton Laird, and we've also got a man who's, you know, spent a lot of time in Germany and has applied his trade sort of at a professional, semi-professional level, and that is Daniel Lamb Hunt. Yeah, look, and look, Lemmy is, you know, held in the highest esteem in New Zealand. Uh, you know, was sort of pioneer of the sport. Uh, went to both of the two previous campaigns. He's sort of getting towards the end of his career. Had a, a really good year. Uh, with the Bond Capitals and the German Bundesliga, um, I think by his own uh, own admission, he's he's probably starting to wind down. But you know, will be a real leader for that team. You won't find a better guy to have around in terms of culture and um, you know helping some of the young guys. It's a very young side. There are some talented young players on that, that that roster that are just starting to make a name for themselves. And a guy like Daniel Lamb Hunt, who's been there and done it before, will be the perfect sort of roommate guy in the clubhouse to help them get through um, that experience to, to, to deal with things that they've never had to deal with before um, and yeah we, we're certainly looking forward to seeing what he's got there's still there's still some tread left on those tyres he's, he's still a talented player and um, I'm, I'm sure he'll loom as a key figure for, for the Diamond Blacks in those games yet on the other, other end of the um, uh, uh, you know situation there where he's a young player establishing himself uh, we're very interested in keeping an eye on him he's certainly in the, in the frame for uh, to a selection and a, and a contract there, um, youngster who's going to be around for a, a number of years to come, and you know, leading alongside someone like Daniel Liam Hunt will be a great opportunity for for Ayrton. Um As it is for for a lot of the, the younger players, you know, McLean Roberts is another one. Mark, okay, he's not uh, <laughs> he's not Albert Grammer, but a talented lefty. Um, you know, he's still just finished school, um, teenager who has a, a big future in front of him and a lot of raw potential there. And um, I don't know how much of a 
how much game time he's going to get in high leverage situations, but I think we all see the, the raw talent and looking forward to seeing um, how, how it goes against quality opposition. So, yeah, he'll be uh, he'll be one to keep an eye on. You, you just uh, look just finally too, just running through the pitches here, and I, I noticed one name, a very very young player, and he of course is the son of Ryan Flynn. Ryan, a long time CEO of New Zealand Baseball, helped establish the Tuatara, and that is young Zade Flynn. Is it really just an opportunity of getting him in the environment? I without knowing the ins and outs, I'd say so. I mean, they get another player that has um, a lot of expectation there. I mean, the raw talent is is unquestioned. Um, probably, and without talking to Scott, I don't know his, his plans, but my guess is he won't be used, they won't be used in high leverage situations. This is probably a selection with an eye to the future. He is going to be a very key player for New Zealand moving forward, you know, as we sort of build towards uh, the next campaign. Um, the reports are that he's, he's, you know, added quite a lot of velocity over the last year or two since he's been back in the United States. Um, and great to see him, you know, like Ryan Flynn established all this. Without Ryan Flynn, New Zealand wouldn't be even. Yeah, we wouldn't be thinking about sending a team to the, the WBC. He opened all those doors. It's, it's kind of neat to see it come full circle and uh, see his son, son Zay be included in, in this roster. And you know, the, the future's bright again. Another player that I'm sure the Tuatara will be keeping a close eye on um, this year and in the coming year. Okay, and just quickly before we let you go, Dale uh, Penrith or Parramatta this weekend? Oh, geez, um, mate, we're looking forward to it. They're always Sydney Grand Final. A lot of rivalry there, isn't there? Uh, look, smart money's on Penrith. I think, you know, if they play enough times, Penrith, to me, are the better team. And they'll win more games than they, they'll lose. But Parramatta have the offence, and they've already proven it by beating Penrith this year. They have the offence to beat anyone. If they are on, they can, they are one of the few teams in the competition that can unlock and pick apart that, that fantastic Penrith defence that has seen them win um, you know, the title last year with a minor premiership again this year. Uh, you know, my, my head says... My head says Penrith. I think I'd prefer to see Penrith win, given the Ivan Cleary connection here. Um, but there's a little bit of me that says Parramatta are worth a sneaky bet or two if you're uh, of, of that persuasion. Um, they have the game to, to take it to Penrith. I, I, don't, I don't see too many other sides beating them in a grand final. Parramatta would be one of the few teams that I could see doing it. Well, you know, led by Man Abbott Grammar's finest and Isaiah Popper Leahy Dale. I'm going to let you go, Dale. I'm going to go and sing the school song as we cel- as we celebrate our centennial year this week. Yeah, enjoy that, Mark. Um, yeah, best of luck to all of the players and certainly those with the Kiwi uh, connection uh, in that grand final. Dale Bludge, lovely to have you on the program. Thank you. Cheers, Ben. What's the music, Ben? Uh, it's Ghost. Uh, I don't know if the singer's off the top of my head. I think it's okay. Slash. I'll, I'll slash. do, I'll do what we... Oh, is it um, Slash and... Um, oh, it's um, it's Miles Kennedy, is it? No, this was before Miles Kennedy. He did an album where every uh, song had a different... Oh, right, okay. ...artist on it. Yeah, no, love my Miles Kennedy. Fantastic. Hey, um, right, we, we've sort of had this... I love the word eclectic mix of sport. We've done wood chopping. We've just talked some baseball... I'm going to now talk uh, a sport that's got one of the largest membership bases in the country. In fact, they've got 20,000 members. Uh, we've all played it. Uh, a lot of people might even have a table at home. Um, I always remember staying in camping grounds around the country and always saying to mum, come on, you've got to give me 50 cents or 20 cents. They've got a pool table. I want to go and play pool. And you'd take your 20-cent piece and you'd line it up on the, um, you'd line it up on the cushion uh, on the side of the table, and that meant that that was where your place in line was in terms of getting used to the table. Um, And over the weekend, 
they had the 2022 New Zealand Open 8-Ball Scotch Doubles Championship. What is that? Well, it's basically just teams of two playing 8-Ball, you know, unders and overs, to use sort of layman's terms that we all grow up with, where you alternate shots as long as you are at the table, as long as you're continuing to pot balls. Uh, fascinating, fascinating format, and I was lucky enough to sort of watch it, and I was thoroughly intrigued by it, and I thought, well, let's maybe do something on it tonight. Uh, also, this weekend, we've got the New Zealand Nine Ball Championship t- playing, taking place in Pukekohe. So from the Massey Club is Bernie Andres. He joins us on the programme. Evening to you, Bernie. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good. It's a big, big sport, isn't it? It is. It is, yeah. No, it's very, very big, all right? It's one of those sports that I think everyone's played at some stage, like you're saying. I think I uh, started out at a squash club, that's probably about three or four. Mum would give me a few coins or she'd play squash with her friends and I'd keep myself amused on the table. Yeah, no, we had a, we had yeah. a, we had an interview with a guy, Sullivan Clark, who's um, a real rising star of Q Sports in this country, and he was saying that, you know, he came through Sacred Heart, he was a runner, very good nationally ranked runner, went to university, studied psychology in Wellington, didn't really enjoy it, but enjoyed playing pool in the um, hostel there, and as they say, the rest is history. How big a challenge is it though, Bernie? Like, I mean, like a lot of sports, um, you know, you're cycling, a lot of people go and ride bikes, a lot of people surf, but it's very hard as a natural, national sports organisation or in an administrative role like Mass AR to capture that audience. Um, it is, especially being a, um, a minority sport, um, which is a little bit frustrating when it is sort of a major sport when it comes to, I mean, we look at our members of our club, biggest sporting club in New Zealand. Um, but yeah, I mean, the different channels now, um, you know, back in the old days, it was sort of like TV1, TV2, Pop Black would be on once a week, have quite a huge following. Dino Kane in the 80s and 90s with his quarterfinals at the 87 World Snooker Championships and then I think in 92 at the Crucible. That's right, yep. I remember 87, I was a student down in Wellington and we'd all crowd around the TV to see how Dean was going. Uh, That was uh, fantastic, right? So, yeah, it's um, a matter of getting that, um, something going on those sort of lines. I know some of the big organisations are getting back into um, Q Sports again. Matchroom's got the rights for nine ball around the world. Now we should just explain um, Matt, just to people out there. Matchroom are the Hearns. They do a lot of the boxing. They're also responsible for the globalisation of darts. And now they're trying to do the same thing with nine balls. So this gives you an idea of where the sport is going. Yeah. No, that, that's right. And I mean, they've got their roots in Q Sports as well. Snooker back in the eighties. Um, Barry Hearn started off managing Steve Davis and had a stable of players. Um, I think it was QWorks or, yeah, I can't remember the name of the company, but then, yeah, that uh, evolved into Matchroom. So, yeah, having them um, putting the weight behind it's great. Um, and then you've got another huge company, Predator, which is a manufacturer, and they've got the rights for 10-ball and 8-ball. Hmm. Um, so they're doing huge things as well, putting a lot of money into the game, hmm. yeah. uh, which is was yeah, let's talk about um, let's talk about the Scotch doubles because I guess everybody's yep. looking for a variation. It's not just similar to what you see a lot of time in, say, um, the Ryder Cup in golf, where you have these two man teams and somebody takes a shot and then the next person takes the next shot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, a lot of people might have played in, in pubs and that sort of thing. I remember when I was younger, you'd go down to the the bar and it'd be doubles. Yep. Put your twenty cents down and be a game of doubles. So that's basically what it is, um, except a bit more strict rules in this one. You've got to call your pockets and you're not allowed to talk with your partner. You can't coach each other. Um, so it's you get up there, take a shot. If you 
spot a ball, then it's your partner shot. If you miss, it's the, the opposing side, so alternating shot. So it's quite an interesting concept, and it's a bit of a leveller as well. Mm. Um, I think we saw that in the weekend um, with our semi-finalists, almost 50% of the semi-finalists were junior players, um, mm. which is great. And uh, it was a strong really strong field. Could have been any one of mm. 10 teams that could have taken it, really. Uh, one thing that's increased, it seems to appear to have increased the standards here and forced everybody to lift their game has been the influx of migrants into this country, uh, particularly out of the Philippines. Uh, the Filipinos are very, very good players and I think recently might have won the World Cup, did they? And then um, we've also got this young player, Marco Toysha, out of the Netherlands, who's actually number 23 in the world across the different forms of the game. And uh, both those players were uh, really, really prominent over the weekend. And what a wonderful opportunity for the juniors and for those young talent in this country to play such experienced, such talented players. Oh, oh, it's amazing. Um, and a lot of those players give freely their time, like Marco and um, coach, the, coach the juniors as well. And it's, it's that old story of uh, the better players you play, the better you get. Uh, really, uh, we've seen that uh, over the last few years since Marco moved to New Zealand, that the standard of play has just lifted so much, uh, which is great. Mm. Now, yeah. Bernie, we recently had a New Zealand team that headed up to Austria. What was that? Yeah, so uh, they went up to Austria for the World Teams Team Ball Championship. So there was two males and a female. So we had Sullivan Clark, uh, you just mentioned before, Denise Wilkinson, who's um, the He's the best female player. Um, I think she just won a, a snooker tournament over the weekend. Um, and also a young junior got sent up, Kieran Dempsey, who's really just turned 19. Um, so it was a team's format. They started off, the females um, would play each other, then one of the males would play each other, and then they would have a game of scotch, um, and then it was the captain's choice. Um, and if it was two all, uh, they moved to a shootout with a 10 on the spot. So, um, yeah. Pretty good, pretty good format. Mm. Um, and not I, too dissimilar from the Moscone Cup that Metrum run. Yeah, and I think it was the Philippines that ended up winning that overall, didn't they? Oh, they did, yeah. I mean, the Philippines, um, such a strong country um, historically for for Q Sports, especially nine ball. Um, had Efren Reyes came out of the Philippines. Um, he's probably one of the um, best players ever, one of the most well-known, the magician. Um, and, yeah, the game's just so big in the Philippines and mm. we'd see the Filipino community mm. here. They're all mm. such good players and it's a big, big player base here mm. um, in New Zealand as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they had such a strong team. Uh, uh, took out Austria, um, the UK, Germany. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, very strong. Yeah, Bernie, um, this weekend is the New Zealand Nine Ball Championship um, that you guys are holding and staging. Now, Nine Ball, as I've alluded to, this seems to be... Um, the Q Sports of choice now. It seems to be the game that's the most popular around the world and probably is going to end up being the major point of view. Um, Marco Toysha, uh, the Dutchman, is he in action this weekend? Are we likely to see Sullivan Clark? Yep, we'll see both of them in action. Um, they'll be sort of using this as a bit of a warm-up. Next week, both of them fly out to Atlantic City for the US Open 10 ball, which is um, yeah, the big probably the big tournament of the year, really, in terms of nine ball. Um, it's the tournament with a lot of history. I think there's 256 players. All the top players in the world will be going to that. Um, so they'll be both pushing hard for a good result there. Yeah, yeah we so. should ju- I should just emphasise too. So, so give an idea for people out there about how big this sport is. There was two famous movies. You had Paul Newman and The Hustler, which was one of the great films. And then one of the early uh, movies, which was The Colour of Money, which had Tom Cruise in it. Now, both 
built around Q Sports. Um, and yep. I think watching both of those movies, the first thing you want to do is just go and practice and become a bull sh- pool shark. Oh, that's right. I mean, yeah, I remember when uh, The Colour of Money came out, um, it was in the late 80s, I think, and uh, yeah, that just uh, <laughs> kept my passion for the game going. And it, same as a lot of other people, and it, and it really brought the American game um, spread it around the world a bit more as well. Like in New Zealand, we didn't even have an American pool table at that stage. We were sort of, you know, a mm. colonial country, um, snooker players, and then our pool tables are all English tables where the American tables are totally different. The balls are all the bigger, um, different cuts of the pockets. Um, and it's like nine, nine balls played on a nine-foot table compared to a seven-foot English table or a 12-foot snooker table. Um, so gradually over time, over the last 25, 30 years, um, that's taken over. I mean, when we started off 30 years ago, we were a snooker club with a mm. couple of English tables to muck around on, whereas now we've got one snooker table, no English pool tables, and everything's American um, mm. pool tables. That's what everyone everyone wants to play. It's such a good game. Um, so you know, free-flowing, and um, it's just an attacking game. It's always action, and it's uh, a lot of fun. Now... We've got the New Zealand Nine Ball Championships on the Saturday. On the Sunday, we've got the New Zealand Junior Open Nine Ball Championships. So what what, what defines a junior? Um, so junior, we typically go um, under 21 as a junior. Um, we sort of base it on the VNEA, uh, which is the eight ball that we play. They have the under 21s, under 16 and under 12 age groups. So we sort of follow that although we've got two juniors heading to Puerto Rico in about six weeks to the World Nine Ball Championship, and they um, have under-19 and under-17 um, age groups. So yeah, there's a couple of different ages that sort of define juniors, so we just sort of look at everyone under-21 and then maybe split those into two or three age groups. Mm. And we've got, and we've, got well. we've got the current under-12 world champion, I'm told. In fact, talking to um, Jimmy the Professor Henry, Yep, uh, I think that was Jimmy's partner in the Scotch Doubles, actually, um, Jack Beggs. Um, he went over to Erie in Pennsylvania in July, had an amazing tournament, um, took out the title. That was his first first time, and his younger brother, Sean, came fourth in the singles. And then they paired up together in the Scotch Doubles and took out the under-12 title uh, for that. Um, I think Jack also took out the speed pool um, in all age groups. Uh, it includes the under-21. He actually played um, Dion Rawlings from Auckland. He's a 21-year-old who was over there as well, and they played each other in the final in check one. And um, with Sean, his younger brother, they paired up um, for the team's competition. They needed three players, but they only had two. But they, I think they still managed to come to fourth place. Mm-hmm. So uh, those two, yeah, got huge futures in front of them. Okay, um, so look, people listening to this that maybe just want to bring a bit of structure to the acute sports, um, maybe some help taking the guesswork out or maybe get into some leagues, what's the best way of doing that, Bernie? Yeah, so for juniors, um, for the school holidays, uh, I think they start next week. We've got our usual, we always run a holiday program throughout the school uh, school holidays. So uh, Masahara, Monday, Tuesday next week uh, from 12 to 4, there's free coaching with the professor. Glen Eden next Wednesday, Pukekohe next Thursday, Hamilton next Friday, and I think in the second week of the holidays, Thursday, Friday in Hamilton, if any, any juniors want to head along. Um, it's a lot of fun for, for beginners or, or sort of advanced players. Um, but otherwise, um, yeah, head down to your local Massey club, get involved with leagues. Um, we have tournaments, I think, every, every Wednesday, and most of the clubs, uh, I think 
Sunday at ULIN as well. Um, but uh, yeah, the community is really welcoming. Um, always sort of help out people. No, look, I've got to say that's the the one thing that I have noticed too. And you know, there can be a few little sort of stereotypes, or um, I guess yeah, in and around sort of. Um, Paul Halls, but that's very much a, a bygone era. I've got to say, very accommodating, world class facilities, world class tables. If people are wanting to watch that nine ball championship this weekend, where are they? Um, that'll be on our YouTube channel. Um, just search up Messe New Zealand, um, and the juniors will be on um, Maori television channel, YouTube channel on Sunday. Um, so we'll have links on our Facebook page. So if you search uh, Messe New Zealand, uh, you'll come across us and you'll find some links on there. Fantastic, Benny. Lovely having you on the program. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Right. 22 Cheers. minutes away from 9 o'clock, you're listening to SENZ. Just changing it up, just mixing it up. Hey, look, I, I do want to say that out there. If you are involved, um, look, I'm sort of on and off all the time. I, I don't necessarily have any sort of set schedule. But if you are a national sports organisation out there and you do think you've got something interesting or you do want to get a little bit of coverage and we think that there's something interesting, more than happy to try and give you guys a bit of coverage. I, I get how difficult it is. Um, more than happy to do it. Um, so, yeah, probably just Google search me and maybe go through um, a different website and stuff. But happy to try and, you know, we're, we're game. we game. We want to try and mix it up. We want to try and be entertaining. We want to try and uh, make sure that sport is, you know, not just defined by three or four. So, yeah, so that's just a message out there to um, any sports body. Some are actually, to be fair, a lot more proactive than others. And I know everyone's got a really good story. One thing with me is I understand how good you've got to be at the highest level of any sport. 21 minutes away from nine. Okay, it is 16 minutes away from nine o'clock. We're through three to 11. We will keep you updated on the Dally M. Uh, you know, the best all-round player in the NRL, also the fairest, because discipline does come into it. They're saying that they reckon it could be the tightest count in years. Who will etch their name into the Rugby League history books. They are expecting a first-time winner. Uh, I know that earlier in the day it was Ben Hunt was top of the leaderboard on 19 points. And that was when voting was closed doors, I think, after round nine. Uh, round 12, in fact. St. George Illawarra skipper Hunt sat just ahead of Panthers um, lock. Um, Isaiah Yeo. Is it Isaiah? Isaiah Yeo. Yeah, sorry, I'm just tired having a bit of a mental block. Um, and then Sharks halfback Nico Hines on 16 points. Got a thought on this one, Ben? Yeah, it's always a it's always a very interesting one because you got different people that watch the games when it goes behind closed doors, and they've all got different perspectives on how things played out. I mean, Ben Hunt would definitely be in the mix there, but if I am leaning towards it, I probably would say a uh, Nico Hines probably would take it out if I, if I was putting money on it. He would be my pick. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, so Nico Hines. Um, what about? Front rower uh, Joseph Tapanay. Yeah, well, he had a very, very strong finish to his to the season. It was very impressive, and he would have no doubt picked up some points uh, with the Raiders' run home to the season. But I, rugby and one of those sports, I guess it's like any sports, you're always going to favour the playmaker 
kind of dude you're always yeah. gonna favor the goal like it's kind of like how yeah. the ballon d'or you always get the goal series you never get the defenders no i know and then you sit there and go you know a couple of years ago you would have thought well let's go with van dyke for liverpool you know and you would have thought virgil van dyke you know a lot of people saying best player and let's be honest if you want to win a world cup it's all about defense isn't it you know you want to big the tournaments you've got to have a really good rock solid defense you're right i mean it's always the same in rugby it's always the first fives i think terry dusatois might have been the exception to the rule in recent times in terms of picking up um, the International Rugby Award. Uh, what about Cameron Munster? A lot of talk about him even possibly going on becoming an immortal. <laughs> I, I hope you said that with your No, bit I'm of serious. Well, immortal? Yeah, I no, know. You're having a laugh. No, I'm not. <laughs> you are. No, sure. I'm not. Oh, he's, oh, he's not. He's not going to be an immortal. Mm. I'm not. I'm not going to look reflect on rugby league in 20 years' time and think Cameron Munster is one of the greatest players the game has ever seen. Mm. No way. Coach of the year: Ivan Cleary, Craig Fitzgibbon, Todd Payton, Kevin Walters. Definitely not Kevin Walters, especially the way the Broncos you'd, you'd finished. Have, you'd have to give it to Payton, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Todd Payton would be my pick, considering former Warriors coach. Oh, don't remind me, please. I honestly thought when I know I know I know your thoughts on the Warriors, Water. I know your thoughts. However, since Cleary left, the best period the Warriors had was when, in my opinion, when Todd Payton was at the helm. Because they would yes, they might not win every game, but they would actually you'd actually see the effort there and you could see them actually trying. And the, and the, and that run the Panthers had, I think they went on like a ridiculous win streak and they lost in the final that year. The Warriors actually came the closest to actually beating them in terms of all the other teams. But Peyton really turned them around, and I was so sad to see him go. Okay, Delhi M, Captain of the Year, um, Anna Reynolds, Cameron Murray, Clint Gutherson, Isaiah Yao, and James Tedesco. Have to be Isaiah Yao. Have to be. Don't think any of the others should be really considered. Well, yeah, a lot of people talking about Clint Gutherson, so... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan, but you know, that's just me. Mm. I know he's helped the Eagles get to the grand final, but... I'm yeah, just not sold. Not okay, sold. rookie of the year. Oh, jeez. Um, Probably Nunai from the Cowboys yeah. have to be. Jeremiah Nunai. Yeah. Yep. Xavier Savage. They're talking about uh, Taylor May, um, Uzumam, uh, Jacob Kiraz are some of the other ones that they're putting forward. Um, certainly won't be um, Certainly won't be a warrior. <laughs> well, what about I the Dally M loser of the year? I, I actually got asked some questions for the uh, Warriors Anonymous, Anonymous podcast. Uh, the guy that runs it is a, who works for SEN in Sydney. And he sent through a whole lot of questions in terms of naming. Uh, they've got their awards, and the, the questions were things such as your player of the year, your signing of the year. And I was literally sitting there, and I was struggling to answer some of these. I literally, had, I, one of them, yeah. I just had to put the same guy down three times because you wanted your top three. I just, <laughs> there's no one else that deserves this. Yeah, no, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, I don't even, see, see the club like the Warriors, um, you know, they have, uh, firstly, they, I don't know if they did, but they should never have had a mad Monday. They didn't deserve it. And they shouldn't even have um, club awards for the Warriors. Like, seriously, you can't give any of those players player of the year. You can't even celebrate that club. Uh, the interesting thing is, and, and we need to take another break, but um, the Dally M female player of the year. So we might have a look at that a bit later, which, you know, relatively new. I'm not sure, is it the first year I'd say so because this is probably the biggest NRLW competition they've had because it's usually been about four or five teams I've got to say it's pleasantly surprised me this year I actually have enjoyed it on the um, I've got to say I enjoy the NRL women's more than I enjoy the Farrah Palmer Cup here for the rugby I just think league is just so much easier to understand Uh, right 10 minutes away from 9 o'clock there's a golden sky 
I wish people could see where I'm sitting right now. I could literally just, your face just like lit up when this started playing. Oh. You're like a, like a little kid at Christmas when he opens his present and he's got the toy that he's been begging his dad for all year. He's like, oh my God, I finally got it. You just face just oh, lit just, up. It's just, it's just the greatest anthem. It's just, you'll never walk alone. I mean, I just think it's the ultimate, ultimate statement for a sports club, a Liverpool football club where... They're just so passionate about it. And they'll never walk alone through the good times or the bad times. There'll be someone there to pick you up, prop you up, and we'll do this together. Um, I was just saying to someone, I was going on again about the 19th, uh, sorry, the 7th of May 2019 when Liverpool beat Barcelona at Anfield 4-0 to go into the Champions League final where they'd beat Spurs. But they needed to beat the might of Barcelona 4-0 after losing the first leg 3-0 in Barcelona with Messi, Suarez. And they did it through Wijnaldum, through Divock Origi, and it is just, I encourage people, you don't have to be a Liverpool fan, but go on YouTube, watch the official video and film of that game from the teams turning up, the television guys getting ready, the drama, the crowd, the tears. Alan Shearer, he's doing the BBC commentary, he says, I've played at Anfield, I've been in some hostile, but I've never heard anything like it. And he's just talking about the stadium and the place, he goes, the place is rocking. And it's just, like, we just haven't got a damn clue here, eh, about tribalism. We haven't got a clue about it. But, yeah, nice music choice, mate. You have got me. I've got goosebumps. I am emotional. I need to tie it in, tie it out, Mark. It is Mental Health Week. Tie it in, tie it out. <laughs> After 9 o'clock, we'll talk some rowing. It is nine minutes, oh, it's actually nine o'clock here. You're listening to SCNZ, Mark Watson with you. One of the best experiences I've had in broadcasting actually was in Tokyo. Uh, second week of the Games, I was lucky enough to be given the kayaking. Um, and I worked with a gentleman by the name of Martin Cross, one of the nicest people you can meet. Uh, Martin was a bronze medalist in 1980 at the Olympics for Great Britain in rowing, and he was a gold medalist in 1984, uh, beating some very good New Zealand crews. Uh, you might be familiar with his voice when you hear him, because if you've been watching the Rowing World Championships over the last week, he has been one of the two voices. He um, also was one of the voices on that, well, one of many Great Olympic moments in Tokyo, but arguably the greatest moment, one of the greatest moments in New Zealand sport, certainly, you know, mimicking what happened with the New Zealand rowing eight back in 1972, and that was the men's eight winning gold. Um, so, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed my week and time with Martin. Anytime you're around Olympic champions, it's always a privilege. So I thought I'd get him on tonight just to sort of review and look back on the World Rowing Championships. He joins us on the show, Martin Cross. Good evening. Welcome. Good morning. Mark, thank you for that. It's great to be with you again. Boy, that voice brings back some memories, mate. I thought you were great memories. Ma- I was just thinking as you, you were talking about the, the, the commentary there, how much fun that was. Yeah, I always remember sort of meeting you at 10 past five down in the lobby of the hotel and walking to the bus and then getting out to the kayaking venue and doing a bit of research. And I think the toughest days were the days at the kayaking when there's no finals and it's just sort of all the heats and the um, repper charges and there's so many different sort of categories and classes. And then you're really sort of just hanging out for the next day so you can sort of call the medal, call sort of all the finals. Yeah, and then uh, that day when Lisa Carrington came down with, with those uh, th- those multi gold medals that she won, what what a sensation that was! Yeah, no, really, really special indeed. And of course, Martin, uh, what a wonderful week it was for New Zealand rowing uh, in Tokyo. You know, on a much smaller budget than say the might of Great Britain and some of those other big countries. Yeah, the Kiwis were sensational in in Tokyo, and um, you know the the women's eight was silver. 
Um, Gowler, well, it was then, she's Williams now, Gowler and Prendergast with the gold and the women's pair, and the New Zealand men's eight in that <clears throat> sensational final, um, just snatching gold ahead of Germany and Great Britain. And um, marvellous, marvellous uh, showing for the team. Mm-hmm. So we've just had the Rowing World Championships take part in the Czech Republic. Um, often after the Olympic Games, the sport can change considerably. A lot of experienced heads perhaps resign and you can sort of see a little bit of the changing of the guard and we sort of see countries bringing that next wave through. Was that the case at these World Championships? Yeah, very much so. I think, um, case in point, the British team, uh, you take a look at one of their crews, the men's four, um, it didn't have anyone in that boat who had represented Britain at senior world championships before. So they were all new guys. They'd been to the under-23s. They'd done well there. But um, what they had was this kind of beautiful, fluid technique, which was really kind of effortless. So they were rowing fantastically. And um, those guys came through and won the gold medal uh, ahead of um, three of the Olympic champions from Australia, which was kind of sensational, really. Um, They went toe-to-toe with the Australians and then just moved away. So the British men, in that respect, uh, new guys coming through. And you could see that through the team, really, particularly um, some of the women in the women's four. You had... Uh, two women from the four that came forth in Tokyo. Disappointment. They they got together with two uh, women who hadn't been to world championships before, and they too won the gold. So there was a pathway, you know, I think, which British Ryan has managed effectively, sort of capitalised on all those fourth places in Tokyo, brought some new talent in, and they've, they've emerged at the top of the medals table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, um, I mean, normally after Olympics, it's a four-year cycle, but it is only going to be a three-year cycle. So how much can we read into the results of this World Championships heading into Paris in 2024, or are things going to change next year, a year on? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're spot on with that, Mark. Things are going to change a year on, um, because I, I think specifically a lot of the uh, rowers who competed in Tokyo, they kind of had a long time off and they didn't come back to training, um, you know, quite uh, quickly enough. So you take the guys uh, from the Netherlands, um, you know, gold medalists in the, in the, in the uh, men's quadruple skulls, their, their new crew, pretty much, they hadn't done anything much until Christmas so they had all that time off and then there was a little bit of uncertainty as to whether they would come back Um, and then they weren't training a lot so the Netherlands quad this year didn't do so well Um, you take Kettle Borsch in the Norwegian uh, men's skull he was umming and ahhing whether he would carry on or not he waited and waited and waited wasn't doing a lot of training in the end he decided to and he was at the back of the A final Olympic qualification is next year and these guys can't afford to do that. Mm. So what you're going to see is a lot of lot of people that have got a whole new season's training behind them and that will push up the standard. So results will be different next year. And I think, you know, the British team were very hungry for success. They got back into training early 
And I think that's why you see them at the top of the medals table. Mm. Yeah, by New Zealand's high standards, a pretty sort of underwhelming uh, world rowing championships. Um, what did you make of the New Zealand team, and what was um, I don't know what what was sort of the what was the rationale perhaps behind it? What did you hear? Well, I think where you look at Prendergast and Williams um, that took the gold medal in the women's pairs, I mean, they are so outstanding. There were some really good um, crews in that event, and um, they rode so well. It was very close between them and the Romanians early in the season at Lucerne, but, you know, they had that block of training together back in New Zealand, and and, and so that was amazing. I think, you know, the men's pair, uh, two guys from the... New Zealand eight that won gold. Um, they came over with so much promise in um, the early season regattas. They won in Poland. Uh, they they won in Henley, but really very very disappointing. Six in the final, and I kind of don't really understand why they weren't closer up to the medals in that event. Mm. I think they were kind of being a little bit brutal on the boat. Uh, whether they'll stay together, I don't know. Uh, Jordan Parry in the men's single, I thought did a fantastic job. He's so much better than he was in Tokyo, where I think he finished at the C final or something like that. He was fourth place, just out of the medals. He will come good again. But then you had another New Zealand gold medalist in the men's, from the men's A, in, in sort of the men's quadruple skull, uh, Phil Wilson. And that boat was finished in the C final. That's way off of Olympic qualifying standard. And I'm not sure that's a project that's got too many legs on it. I think, you know, if New Zealand go for a a sweet boat again like the men's eight, I think that would be good. You need to finish in the top five for Olympic qualifying. They've got a big job in front of them. Um, And the women's four, well, the the women's four is there or thereabouts. They they, uh, finished eighth. They'll need to finish, I think, in the top, top five or six to qualify for the Olympic final. That's definitely not beyond them. But there's a real job for New Zealand rowing now because, as you say, the results were, considering Tokyo, relatively disappointing. But then, you know, it's the first World Championships after an Olympics. Mm. Uh, Caroline Florin, the uh, single sculler out of the Netherlands, beating Emma Twig, Twig the Olympic champion from Tokyo. But admittedly, this was her first major competition due to injury, due to COVID. But you, even so, you do sort of sense the changing of the guard here. How good is the Dutch athlete? Um, I I think that the Dutch sculler has been the sensation of the season, really. She's won every single race that she's come up against by clear water. And, you know, it was such an eagerly anticipated clash between Twiggy and, and Florine. And um, I, I do think that Emma had been hampered. She came over to Europe and she had COVID, so she couldn't race at Henley or at Lucerne. And, you know, I, I think she needed some flat-out racing in her legs to be at her best. There, there was a really exciting moment where Twiggy started moving back in the middle of the race at Florine. And then Florine just let her come to about wow. half a length and, and, and then shut the door. Um, I would say if you're hoping that Emma Twig might win gold in um, uh, in Paris, there, there's still a pretty good chance of that happening. Um, I, th- I think, you know, with, with the focus that next year's Olympic qualification is going to bring, she'll be right up there. Wow. But, you know, make no mistake, Florine is a new star of the sport and, and she's a, a tougher opponent for Emma Twig than any... Yeah. The, 
Twiggers previously faced. Yeah, it's quite it's quite bizarre um, when you talk about qualification for the Olympics next year, particularly with Tokyo only being last year. But again, that's what happens with COVID and the Tokyo Olympics being delayed by a year. So can you just take us through how the rowing qualification works? What is the major regattas next year in terms of countries securing their spots for Paris? Well, the the tension ramps up for the World Championships. It is the most tense World Championships, you know, in, in the um, four-yearly cycle. Rowers, a, a number of boats will qualify depending on their position at the World Championships. So, for example, in um, the men's and women's eights, the top five eights will finish. The six eight um, won't go through in, in something like uh, the lightweight men's and women's double skulls. Uh, you will have, which the two New Zealand boats are in, you, you will have the top seven boats through. So six in the A final will qualify, and then the first crew in the B final, the seventh place crew, will get an Olympic qualification slot. And what that means, Mark, in, in terms of all the events, is it, it matters more to federations that they get a qualifying place than they get a medal. And, and it makes the semi-finals where those you know, places in the A and B finals are at stake, it makes them so tense. And you can feel the tension dripping out of all the coaches and the athletes, uh, those qualification regattas. There is a last chance for um, other crews to qualify. And that's the so-called regatta of death, which happens at Lucerne. And as far as New Zealand crews are concerned, um, that's where you have a last chance to qualify. It's, it's where the eight qualified in 2021, the New Zealand men's eight, because they finished sixth in the 2019 World Championship. So they had to go to the regatta of death, which they ended up winning. Um, there are some other regional qualifications. So if you are from Latin America, or if you're from Asia, you do have those regional qualification opportunities. And that's the chance for rowing to get its universality up. So to get small nations, I don't know, like um, like Chile or Indonesia, a spot in the Olympic Games. So it's much more difficult now to qualify if you're from Europe or North America or Australia or New Zealand, because you are all in together and you have to go through either the World Championships or the Regatta of Death. So it's so difficult now. Mm-hmm. Uh, just with the single skulls, I mean, we saw in the kayaking last year that you're allowed more than one boat um, from one country for the first time in kayaking. What's the ruling around the Olympic Games? Can New Zealand potentially have two single skulls or the UK, or is it still just one country, one boat? No, it's, it's one country, one boat. I, I think, you know, the IOC is so careful now to try and get a lot of countries represented in the Olympic Games. So rowing... You know, it, it tries to use the events with, with just one competitor like the single skulls or a couple like, you know, the pairs to, to increase its universality. So it doesn't really want two competitors from New Zealand or, or two from Great Britain. It, it would much rather have, um, you know, one, one competitor from Great Britain and then allow the, the place for another sort of small nation, you know, like Vanuatu or Benin or... Um, or, or, or Chile, so so it, it bumps up its universality, which keeps it sweet with the Olympic movement, which is such a key thing now. Mm. And, and Martin, any changes to the program for Paris? Still the same number of events, same number of boats? Yeah, that's a great shout. There have been a small number of changes. Rhone's, I think it's is it the third biggest sport in the Olympics. It used to have over five hundred and fifty athletes. I think. That athlete number has gone down for Paris now. So there'll be 
less boats in some of the categories for rowing, um, which is, I think, a trend, you know, when new sports come in, the IOC are looking to, you know, keep their athlete numbers stable around about 10,000 for the whole games. So rowing's had to lose some of those slots. So some of the events have lost uh, entries. But by and large, unless you knew that, you, you, you wouldn't... Uh, you could watch the Olympic regatta and, and not notice it. So um, the big change for rowing, of course, will come in probably 2028. Um, the course there is 1,500 metres in Los Angeles, and rowing's made a special exception to race that distance rather than 2,000. And it looks like, we, we're not 100% sure, but beach sprints where, you know, um, it's, it's kind of like coastal rowing uh, on, on the sea. Uh, will come in as an event to replace the lightweight men's and women's doubles, which will impact New Zealand a lot, I think. Mm, yeah, we have. It's been the small boats in the last 20 years that have given us a lot of Olympic success and uh, certainly a lot of Olympic glory. Look, the New Zealand team, I guess, or the New Zealand rowers have the benefit now of coming into a New Zealand summer, train here, national championships, uh, regional championships. What does it mean for the Northern Hemisphere country? What do the Great Britain rowers do over the next sort of four or five months? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting talking to some of the coaches. I mean, I, I talked to one of the coaches of the Portuguese and said, you know, I was, he said, I was just going to give him a couple of weeks off, but then I decided, no, I'm going to give him an extra three weeks off and then, you know, come back to training. So um, the, the, the British crews and the, the, the crews from nations like Germany and France, they go back into this long-distance, low-intensity training, a lot of time in the weights room, They'll, be, they'll have their three weeks off and then they will come straight back at it. You know, the, the, the pressure, I, I can't really emphasise this enough, the pressure for this last year is, has been nothing like it will be for the Olympic qualification year. So you'll, you'll, see, that, you'll see the athletes um, go into this long-distance training. Um, you'll, you'll see them maybe, challenge, you know, new athletes coming up and so... Uh, I think in Great Britain particularly, they have a whole host of athletes on the bank that want to challenge the guys that won Olympic gold, uh, that won World Championship gold medals. So there'll be quite a lot of competition for places in the assessments, and, there, and there'll be two or three assessments before Christmas, and and you know that gets quite tense for their owners as well. So they're going to enjoy their three weeks off, but then they're you know they're back into the melting pot. Well, Martin Cross, lovely to catch up, lovely to have you on the programme. Well done at the Rowing World Championships. Uh, it certainly came across very well here in New Zealand. And, um, yeah, let's just hope we get the English Premier League back underway and good luck with England naming of its World Cup squad and the World Cup of football. Uh, thanks, Mark. It's been great talking to you as ever. No, lovely to have you. Martin Cross there, international rowing commentator, former Olympic Games gold medalist and bronze medalist, one of the nice guys, one of the good guys, joining us here talking all things rowing. Yeah, somewhat of a disappointing New Zealand Rowing World Championships. Um, how much can you read into it? I'll always say this. If you want to win a world title, you've probably got the best chance of doing it the year after an Olympics. You have a lot of athletes who do just take time out. You have a lot of athletes that just um, might end up retiring because at the end of their cycle, and so it's a strange one. Um, you know, if you look at the results for New Zealand at a lot of um, World Cups and World Rowing Championships, between 2012 2016, we dominated World Champs, got to Rio, and we are actually really, really disappointing because countries just got their run and their timing right. And I'm sort of hoping with New Zealand that we're a little bit like that, that we're actually, you know, on the way up 
and we're not sort of setting a standard and a benchmark right now, but it's a, it's a very, very fine balance. 19 minutes after nine, telephone number here is 0800 150 uh, If anything you want to talk about, feel free. Uh, Dally M, who wins the Dally M? Um, I'm not sure what time that's officially going to come out. You can text us here or email us. Uh, the other thing, I read an interesting article today, actually, I think it was Gregor Paul in the Herald talking about Fringe All Blacks and whether they should be picked on the end of the year tour to go or whether they should go on the New Zealand A tour because they'll get a lot more game time. And it made a lot of sense. I mean, Roger Tuivasa-Shek, in my opinion, you put him on the New Zealand A tour and let him start at second five. You take a lot of those players that Lester Fayananuku, uh, Fayananuku was another one. No, it wasn't. It was um, Fakatava, the halfback. And they're saying maybe you put him on the New Zealand A tour so that he gets plenty of game time and put Brag Weber in the All Blacks as that cover, as that third string halfback or even a TJ Perinara perhaps. Where do you sit on this? It made sense. Too many of our fringe All Blacks just haven't played enough rugby this year. And you know the stupid dumb thing is that next year, because they've been part of the All Black squad, they'll be told during Super Rugby they've got to have a week off. Can somebody tell me how our All Black players having a forced week off, this is in addition to weeks off that they might just have because their own coaches decide to give them a rest because they're playing a lesser side or they're just having weeks off because of injury or a concussion, so they're actually having weeks off and resting anyway. Can someone tell me how that helped the All Blacks this year. We've just dumbed it down so much, haven't we? We have just dumbed it down so much. And now these players believe it. We can't play 14 test matches a year. Yet you look at the NFL, 17 regular season games, I think it is now, admittedly. Um, Gridiron, yeah, positions are very, very precise and you're really out there for such a small period of time. But you look at how many games the English Premier League footballers play. Look how much baseball is 160 regular season. NBA, I think, is 84. Um, and, and and this is the other thing. And please feel free, 0800 You don't have to talk, talk anything you want, but I just want to see if we can get, maybe get a little bit of talk on this. And we'll get Ben on the program in one moment. But I don't want to hear how tired the All Blacks are. I don't want to hear them losing to Wales, Scotland or England in the last test and we go, oh, look, it's been a long season. They're having another two or three weeks off now. They have so much time off. They have so many weeks where they don't play. And when they are available to play, the teams are often changed in and out anyway. So you're not guaranteed for start every week. The other thing I did have to laugh at was Ian Foster coming out in the paper with a comment the other day, oh, we're only going to get better. The best is yet to come. Didn't we hear that two years ago? 22 minutes after nine, Ben. I was going to make a quick point. It's quite interesting with the amount of uh, Super Rugby games because you look at like the English Premiership, those guys play 24 games before finals. United Rugby Championship play about 18, 19. And you've also got, for the best teams, they've got all the European competitions as well. So they are playing a lot more well, rugby. Liverpool played 64 games last year, Liverpool Football Club. 64. Incredible, eh? 90 minutes a game, sometimes three games a week. Steve, good evening. Yeah, good evening, Moro. Yeah, yeah. Good, thank you. Good, lovely to hear from you, my good man. 
yeah, no, no problems, mate. Just tuning in as I'm <clears throat> driving back from uh, back from Tauranga. Um, interesting what you say. You know, off, off the Tauranga Fussy, um, put in a good effort for or a good ship for Northland um, against uh, Bay of Fiji and the, um, the Bunnings NPC at Tauranga this afternoon. And you know, you could just see the guy just wanted to get out and contribute. So I, I'm with you, mate. I don't think it does these guys any good whatsoever being basically cotton balls with the group. You know, I think I think the, the, there's a lot of guys here. That's that's my concern. Even as they go go into this uh, northern hemisphere phase, that if you have one or two injuries, all of a sudden you've actually got to bring guys in who haven't had a, a whole lot of rugby, and that's. That, to me, is really concerning. Yeah, look, uh, look, we we have done it. Then I'll say this. I remember 2000 when we won that World Cup. The best two players that were Jerome Kano and were Jerome Kano and um, Kevin, Kevin Mialamu. And those guys, from memory, mate, they played all the Super Rugby, they played a little bit of Mitre 10 Cup, and they played all the way through that World Cup, and they were magnificent. Now, you even go back, Stephen, to when Graham Henry first took over, and we had record wins in France, I think, in 2005, or may have won a Grand Slam in 2005 over there, 2006. Record wins at the end of the year against the French, uh, against all the Northern Hemisphere sides. You know, the boys were playing all of Super Rugby. They were playing some ITM Cup and then what happened in 2007, well, we decided that the players needed to rest. We decided to bring in rest and rotation. We had a winning formula. We changed it up and we ended up losing. And we seem to continue to do it. But if someone can demonstrate to me genuinely that these guys resting is benefiting, I'll buy into it. But tell me, tell me how it worked this year. It hasn't worked this year. These guys need to play. And talking to Justin Marshall on one of the Sunday shows that I've done with Justin, he said, mate, he was gutted when he wasn't allowed to play. He said, I wanted to play. I wanted to play every game. And if we actually ask the players if they want to play every game. You there, mate? It just might have dropped out. He's in his car. You there, Stephen? Yeah, no, no, still there, mate. I, you just went out, went out for a moment. Yeah, I totally agree. And we've seen too many examples of this where guys have had to come in because of injuries, and 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 they just look short of a gallop. Yeah, but there's always going to there's always going to be a natural attrition rate with any team, aren't there? There's always going to be the guy that's going to get injured that's naturally going to be forced to have a week or two weeks. You know, sometimes you know it's, it's not even even when they do play, they're not actually playing eighty minutes. Most of them are only playing bloody fifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's hey, how did how did Northland go? Oh, listen, for them it was a it was a must win game down at the Tauranga Domain this afternoon, and it it, it took a, a cut. A, Clutch from Dan Hawkins to win the game right at the end, but it uh, it keeps them in the in the, in the hunt for the uh, quarterfinals. But um, they do need a couple of results to go their way. I think uh, the Hawks made a beat Tasman. That game is being played in Napier on the weekend. There's a couple of other permutations as well that could go their way. But I suppose more than anything else, they've, they've given themselves a chance. So their last game is up in uh, Kaikoui on uh, on Sunday. Mm. But in the main, it was really good. And, and like I say, it was really good to see Ofatoanga Fussy. And, and he really contributed. I actually think he might have, uh, might have actually picked up the, um, 
on the planet of Nathan Orphan. Yeah, no, look, and again, just play, guys, play. I mean, Hoskins, Satudu, uh, you know, all of these guys, please, they're the best rugby players in New Zealand and they're not playing and it's not helping New Zealand rugby. Steve, hey, drive carefully. I look forward to catching up with you next Friday, my good man. Thank you. Stephen Harris there. Um, lovely to have him on the programme. Um, very, very good rugby brain on him. Very good rugby brain. Uh, very knowledgeable. Spends a lot of time watching club rugby, a lot of time provincial rugby, does some commentary. And I've got a lot of time for what Stephen has to say. In fact, he's one of my go-to guys sometimes behind the scenes as well, just to get his thoughts on some stuff. But come on, let's just play. Have our best players playing. We'll take a break. We've had a few guys phoning through. We're going to come back to them. Our lines are open. 0800 What's this personal Jesus? It's uh, Uprising by Muse. Oh, okay, Uprising by Muse. I recognise. I thought it might have been um, Marilyn Manson there for a moment. Don't think so. No, no. Okay. Hey, um, 29, 28 minutes away from nine. Hey, great that people are phoning through. We'll get to them in one moment. Really good text that's come in. Jerry Collins wanted to play every game possible. And no one to use a different name, but it was kind of obvious. I do recall, though, All Black Management threatened to tear his contract up if he continued to play when asked not to. I think he then returned to one of his old jobs being a dusty on the rubbish bin run. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sportsman. You want you, you want to play, man. You want to play. As a kid, I was so devastated when games were postponed or cancelled. Anyway, let's go to the phones. Hi, Brent. Yeah, hi, mate. Good, thanks. What a Yeah. You're right, brother. Yeah, good, mate. We're too top heavy, eh? We are. It's all about the, the ABs and nothing about underneath, whereas when I started in 69, it was all about underneath. You know, well, well, like, all the clubs and that matter, they man. Yeah, and it doesn't matter anymore. And Brent, what I say, mate, is you've got to have no. top. You've got to have top. You've got to have top down to inspire, but you've got to have bottom up, or you don't have any top down. Correct. It's a house of cards, mate. Yeah, it's coming right, crumbling down, Brent. What a you know when you talk about having to turn up. What about those huge tours we did in the UK and South Africa? Do you think those guys said, "No, I'm not available"? No. Oh, look, we, we, we've dumbed it down, Brent. We have dumbed it down, mate. Everybody's tired now, you know. I even see it in... I it's even the detriment of our game. Yep, and it's where sports science has had too much influence. And, you know, look, some days... I always remember this, Brent. Um, I used to sit down with a, a rain coach by the name of Arthur Liddy, the great, and he said, look, throw the heart rate monitors away, Mark. He, because sometimes yeah. the heart rate monitor, if you read them, they tell you you were tired. So you, you know, so you'd say, "Well, my heart rate's telling me I'm tired. I won't train today." There was a number of times where I turned up to sessions and I felt really, really tight. But I never made the decision on how tired I was until I started. And nine out of ten times, once I started, I actually came right and actually had some really good workouts. Now, if I had to listen to the heart rate monitor or listen to the sports scientists, I would have missed half my training sessions. Correct. Yeah. What a that's the big problem in the rugby, right? Yep. The, profession, the professionalism has been to the detriment in the entire game because it's become over-analysed and guys are getting breaks. They're not available to play for their province. Jesus, what do I can remember? Wellington players playing the last test against South Africa and then the following day going to Waikato and taking the shield and the title. Oh, look, there's stories even going back to guys like Mark Shaw playing the British and Irish Lions here in 83 and, you know, the next day fronting for Manawa too. I mean, you know, it, 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 yeah, you keep, dumb, you, know, you keep dumbing it down and everybody believes in it. You keep lifting the standards and everybody will raise to those standards. Who, what rugby club in Wellington, Brent? Mate, my first club was Porora. Yep. But, yeah, mate, the, the club thing was strong as a, eh, mate. 
you had all those lower levels playing excellent rugby, you know, and you could see the guys that were going to... And you and I know what that some good players still missed out on those top teams, but we had that depth, eh, mate? Yep, no, and we're in trouble now, Brent. Hey, Brent, lovely to have you on the programme. Really appreciate you phoning through. Thank you. Uh, you're a patriot. You're a good man. Mark from Sydney, welcome. Hello, Mark. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. I hope the weather's better over there than it is here tonight. We're having a filthy New Zealand-worthy thunderstorm. I've got my two German shepherds inside here with me because they hate storms. So, yes, it's an interesting uh, meteorological experience here tonight. Not too bad here. Not too bad here today, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. What can I do for you tonight, Mark? Well, I was uh, calling to say that I'd agree totally with what you were saying about New Zealand rugby. It's too top-heavy. It needs to be bottom-up again because, I mean, if you make it too top-heavy... You're going to have. There's only a limited number of roles for uh, guys who actually and women who actually get on the field. Well, it's see. going to discourage. Yeah. It's going to discourage people from wanting to be an All Black, and mm. um, you know they'll be going to other sports or um, quitting the game altogether. So you know New Zealand loses out on uh, tremendous opportunities to develop uh, tremendous potential All Blacks. You know, both male and female. Yeah, well, look, Mark, I think one of the uh, really bad byproducts of all of this is, too, we're seeing a lot more of our coaches now heading off overseas and we're losing all of our intellectual property. You know, I remember, I think it was, I think it was two, when we won the World Cup in 2015, there was a big discussion, oh, we've got to sign up Kieran Reid and we've got to sign up this player. We don't want them going overseas. We need them. And there's a fear they will go. And I'm like, mate, they're just suckering you into spending another two or $300,000 a year on them. My answer is let them go. If they want to go, if the romance of the all-black jersey is gone and seven, dollars $800,000 a year is not enough and only a million dollars is going to keep you here, go. Because I would rather see that money then being spent on the retention of our coaches and say the only way you're going to keep our coaches here is firstly, let's pay them well. And I'd pay coaches more than I'd be paying a lot of the players, the good ones, but let's make sure we've got really robust competitions so there's actually some meaning to what they're doing. There's actually some real importance placed on their role. Okay, it's not the all-black job, but, man, you're in charge of one of the great provincial sides in this country and what a competition we've got to look forward to and hey you're, you're a coach of one of the great super rugby sides and look what this means and these roles are so coveted but you know we, we've given all Absolutely. that up and all and, 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 you know the problem is you go and say so you go and sign a Kieran Reid up well he and I'm only just using Kieran as an example it could be a whole lot of players but what's to stop them from suddenly getting a major knee reconstruction they miss two years meanwhile meanwhile you know, we've got no money to keep our top coaches here, and they're saying, well, you know, I'll go and coach England, I'll go and coach the club clubs over there. This is the way we do it in the Southern Hemisphere, and, you know, next minute, next minute, what's happening? The Northern Hemisphere now is the benchmark, not the Southern Hemisphere. That's right. I mean, I think there's two things with that. Number one, well, three, actually. Number one, I'm a big Buller fan because I used to live in Murchison. My mum was from there, and I've got family in Westport, and... Uh, around the country, but, you know, buller at heart, and so I'm a fervent buller supporter. But also, I think there's both pros and cons if coaches go overseas. The pros is that they gain tremendous experience that they may not get in New Zealand, and they can bring that experience back to New Zealand if they're offered the right incentive. And number two, if Rugby New Zealand um, actually gets their brains in gear, like you said, they will offer coaches good salary packages and yes they should be if they deserve it it should be more than the players Mm. because i think having new zealand coaches at home 
not only boosts the profile of New Zealand sport, like not only rugby union, but New Zealand sport in general, because they can see how good New Zealand coaches are, which would then um, have a positive effect on the players because good coaches means good players. And then that would boost New Zealand sport, both rugby union and as a whole, with regard to good profiles. And then it would also promote the ability to develop future coaches. Like if young people can look at a New Zealand, say, rugby union coach, be it male or female, and think, okay, they are not only good themselves, but they've been uh, brought up, as it were, in New Zealand with a good, uh, shall we say, coaching track record, like education, practical experience in being a coach on the field with good teams, I could do that because it would, to me, if New Zealand rugby adopted that kind of approach, it would be good not just in bringing to like the maximum potential level current coaches and players, but future coaches and players as well. And I think that's the problem with New Zealand rugby among many at the moment is that they're too blinkered. Like you say, they focus too much on the All Blacks and they're not focused on broadening their perspective to... uh, keep New Zealand rugby at a grassroots level healthy, thereby and opening channels to enable future players and future coaches, both male and female, to develop within New Zealand, develop New Zealand coaching talent and broaden the ability of New Zealand sporting as uh, markets as a whole. Yeah, no, Well said, Mark. Really well said. I agree completely. Hey, lovely to have you on the program as always. Thank you. Don't be a stranger to the show. 0800 150 Lines are open. I love this. We're just talking about you know, how much our top players don't play and whether some of our fringe All Blacks should actually just go on that New Zealand A Tour this year so they actually get regular game time. Roger Tui versus Sheik, um, really, really good example. Hoskins, a tutu. Um, you know, th- those players that have sort of been uh, less, uh, not Whaianganuku, um, Whakatau, the halfback out of Dunedin, out of um, the Highlanders. Just get them some game time. They just haven't had any game time. I, I like this text that's come in. I recall the third test against the Springboks in 1981. The following day, the Manawatu and Wellington players, Gary Knight, Frank Oliver, Mark Shaw, Mark Donaldson, Lockie Cameron, Stu Wilson, Alan Houston, Murray Mixted took their places in what was the decider of the first division competition athletic park. No doubt with hangovers, but that that, uh, but there was no rest for them. Agree. You know, everyone says, oh, no one's ever going to run a sub four minute mile. One guy goes out and does it. Everybody else suddenly starts running sub four minute mile. They once said that women couldn't run marathons because their uterus would fall out. By the way, if you're talking about a whole lot of women, it's called uteri. I've always, I don't know why I know that. Um, and now we've got people like Erin Baker. We've got women doing Ironmans all around the world. Stop telling us what we can't do, man. Ben. It's quite funny just seeing the text that came through and talking about Stu Wilson. We had Stu Wilson on, on the Saturday session early, earlier this year about Great part guy. of our Legends segment, and he actually spoke about this, and he said that he went into his work on Monday, and he said the reception lady was like, didn't know anything about rugby, and she's like, hey, Stu, how are you? How was your weekend? And he said he stunk like a brewery, had a cut head, and he's just like, oh, fantastic, mowed the lawns on Saturday, read the paper on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, he's one of the great guys. He goes, Mark, when I first, when I've sent interviewed Stewie a number of times. He goes, when I first found out I was in the All Blacks, mate, I was on the urinal and uh, somebody mentioned it. Yeah, and I basically uh, ended up um, yep, ended up uh, urinating all over myself. Um, yeah, tells a great story anyway. The great Stu Wilson. Wonderful time, wonderful era. 18 minutes away from 10. You're listening to SENZ. The telephone number 0800 150811. Can't sing. Anyway, Graham, good evening. Welcome. Hi, good day, Mark. How are you? Good, buddy. 
Yeah, good discussion. I just came home and uh, but I caught part of it. Yeah. No, I remember in 1989, Bruce Dean's played a test down here for against the French, you know, and he played for Glenmark. Yeah, the next day, you know, and that was, you know, right up to the early 90s. Um, you know, players did that, you know, and Braden Enor was another one who doesn't play much rugby. I think apparently he's been released to play for Canterbury this weekend. But, um, yeah, this this whole situation, I know we've talked about it for nine on ten years, you and I, but but it doesn't get highlighted enough, you know. And, you know, the story about Stu Wilson after the third test against South Africa in 81, you know, um, and that, that, that went on for generations, you know. They played for their clubs sometimes. Too, like I just said, and um, you know some of these guys d- aren't getting rugby, and that's the problem. You know, um, I mean Geordie Barrett, I mean he did brilliantly at second five, but he'd been playing, whether rightly or wrongly, at fullback. So he'd been playing, so um, some oh. of these other guys aren't getting lots of rugby. No, well I mean you look at Papa Lee, you look at um, you look at Hoskin Satutu, and you know Satutu gets a few people. Uh, you know, criticising him. It's like, well, he hasn't played. He hasn't damn well played, mate. You know, pick your team on Tuesday, pick your team on Tuesday, and then release the rest to go and play yep. wherever they need to play. But let them play a full season of Super Rugby. As I said, they'll pick up an injury ground, they'll have a week off anyway, you know? Exactly. I, I, I cannot think of any other sports competition in the world where your best players don't play. It doesn't happen in the NFL, it doesn't happen in baseball, it doesn't happen in American gridiron, it doesn't happen in the English Premier League, and it certainly doesn't happen in the professional clubs in England when it comes to rugby as well. And, and how has no. it benefited us this year, Graeme? How did it benefit us oh, in 2019? Well, it hasn't. And in 2007, you know, I mean, Graeme Henry admitted he got it wrong, but they, they stood, what was it, the top 30 players or whatever it was down behalf the competition. And, you know, the Crusaders were doing quite well till the eight or nine that were in the team came back and they were half the players that they were mm. <laughs> the previous year. Um, you know, they looked soft. They looked, um, well, they looked, well, they looked but, they'd been in a gym and that, that happened to all of you in a sad well, afternoon, of course, look, look at after, the competition. Graham, after nine o'clock, I had uh, a colleague of mine, Will Rowing, commentator on and we were talking about Emma Twig. Now, Emma Twig finished yep. second at the individual scales, but that was the first competition she had had because of COVID and from injury. So she hadn't been able to do any of the World Cups, and she finished second. That's exactly my point. Now, if she had had some World Cups and had had some lead in races, she might have won that event. But you cannot expect athletes to come in and be at their best when they're not playing. Roger Tuivasa, go on the New Zealand A Tour and play. Lester Vianganuku, go on the New Zealand A Tour and play, and play every week. You know, these guys yeah. are not going to get a start, man. Yeah. I mean, Seve Reese came off the bench, didn't he, on Saturday. Mm. So he should be immediately still released to play for Tasman. But I bet you there's a chance they'll say, oh, he played on Saturday night yeah. for the All Blacks. But, but so you, he can't play. But you, I mean, that is just bloody Yeah, ridiculous. but you watch next year, Super Rugby, Lester Anuku, all of those players that were named in that squad will be told, Graham, oh, you have still have to have the mandatory week off. And then they would have been injured for two weeks, like it happened with Bowden Barrett this year. It's just absolutely nuts. Hey, look, Graham, I'm behind on my commercial break, so we're going to have to no, keep no. it short, but I will leave it there, buddy. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, yeah, mate. Good, man. Okay. No problem. Talk Cheers, another time. See you, mate. Cheers. Yep, bye. Yep, bye. Hey, really, really good text that Chris has sent in, and thank you, Chris, and thank you for everybody that sent texts in. What a you're bang on. In the NRL, the best players play from round one right through to round 26 and finals. They often also then play State of Origin on a Wednesday and then back up for their club that weekend. They still do the sponsorship stuff, etc. as well. 
And that's the best comp in Australia as we get to see the best players playing for their local area every week. Then they have a full long break from October to March, which also makes us miss it like the NFL. All Blacks and pro rugby players are managed so much they can't even give a good interview. Brilliant, Chris. Well said. Over-resourced, pampered, um, brainwashed. Uh, the only thing I will say about rugby league is that I still believe a lot of guys can play for 80 minutes. I never understood why you take your best players off the field for 60 minutes, particularly after 60 minutes, or only play them for 60 of the 80 minutes, particularly when you're coming up against the side that maybe across the park is better than you. In those situations, you want your best players. Trust me, if you can do an Ironman, if you can run 201 for a marathon, if man can do this, rugby players can play 80 minutes in both codes. But rugby league certainly do it a lot better than rugby union. Hey, look, after 10 o'clock, we'll have a bit of a wing it out. I have no idea what we're doing, Ben. Do we have any idea of what we're doing? Probably not. Uh, but that, hey, that's how we roll. But I want you to be a part of the show between 10 and 11 here on Extra Time. Boy, that sounds like Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin. Carlo and Tini. Close enough, I'll give it give it to you. New Tini. New Tini. Boy, I mean you listen to Way Down Inside Woman You Anyway, I'm not a singer, clearly you can tell. Um it is one and a half minutes after ten. You are listening to SENZ with you through to eleven o'clock tonight. Telephone number 0800 150 You can text us here on double eight double three. Um We've done a lot of stuff different tonight. We've had a real eclectic mix of interviews. We had Jason Winyard in studio between 7 and 8. Wood chopping extraordinaire. Remarkable athlete. 48 years of age. Could walk into an all-black team just on size, core strength. Just, just, just hard, hard man. Um, won over 270 different world titles. Uh, looking to head off to Gothenburg in Sweden to win his 10th. Um, still... World Championships, like the overall sort of outdoor wood chopping event, um, the sort of the Blue Ribbon event. Had a lot of injuries and actually had some stem cell treatment, which was really, really interesting to listen to, uh, rather than getting joint and hip replacements. Uh, then we then talked a little bit of baseball. We've talked some Q sports. Uh, we've talked some rowing world championships. And then we thought, look, we'd just throw it open for a little bit of talk back. Um, and I've got to say, I was reading the article from Gregor Paul in the Herald because we've got this New Zealand A team travelling to the Northern Hemisphere, which I think is going to end up becoming a regular thing just to create greater depth, give our guys more international experience, also have maybe some backup players in the UK for the All Blacks that are match fit. And part of the discussion is those fringe All Blacks, like the likes of the Hoskins, the Tutus, um, the Whakatavas, the... Roger Tuivasa-Shek, possibly Stephen Perifetta, putting them in that A-team so they just get some game time, they just get some rugby because they just haven't played and it cannot be their good for their development. You think about Stephen Perifetta, they had the Super Rugby final, right? It was June 18th. He has played 57 seconds for the All Blacks. I'm not sure whether he's been released at any point to play for Auckland. I don't think he has. Taranaki, I mean. 
57 seconds. Originally out of the Manawatu. How does a guy develop? How do you have the third best first five in New Zealand simply not playing in our season? How does that happen? You know, you have an obligation to the rugby fan here. The NFL is popular because every week and every team, there are world-class players. People can go along, people can tune in, and they can see the best players go up against each other. They can see your favourite players go up against maybe the player that you despise the most, but only because you respect them. You've got Agassi and Sampras every week right across the board. Then... You've got the EPL. Same thing. There is no proof whatsoever that rest and rotation works. It doesn't work. It's a PowerPoint presentation. It looks good on paper. And you go, wow, look at our high performance plan. Look how good we are. If we rest these guys, they'll be better. Did it happen? Did it help resting those players? How did it go against Ireland? How do we go against... South Africa, how do we go against Argentina? And let's not kid ourselves, we lost that first test against the Wallabies. And everybody says, oh, no, no, the referee got it right. You wouldn't have been saying that if it had been the other way around. Guys have got to play. We had Stephen Harris phone the programme earlier. He'd watched uh, uh, Tuanga Vasi play today and said, look, he played well because he's been playing every week. What do you want as fans? What do you want to see? I mean, you can rest a guy all you want, and then they just pick up an injury and you, you lose them anyway. You want to go and match hardened. You know, you don't go to the Olympics not having pl- run or not having swum or not having cycled or whatever the sport is. You go in with competition behind you. And if you actually talk to the players, most of them want to play. You know, the NRL, man, every week, best players play because they know the percentages are so small they can't afford to. But they're also playing their top players to play. Bums on seats. It's still a business. Um, hi, Mark. Sports trivia for you. Who has won the wooden spoons for the war? Who has won more wooden spoons, the Warriors or the Crusaders? Well, I'd probably say the Crusaders. I don't, how many times have actually the Warriors ever finished bottom? I don't think they ever have, have they? I mean, they've been close to it. They've been bloody ordinary, but I'm not sure they've actually ever won the wooden spoon, have they? I don't know if that answers your question, Dave. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. If you want to talk on that or talk on any other sporting matter, where are we at with oh the Dally M? That won't be too much, but made it roll it. I wanted to ask you about what you thought about the is it the Mancad dismissal in cricket? Well, I mean, it's that thing, isn't it? You can sort of say legally correct, morally corrupt. I don't know. I think if you've got a let, – let's let put it this way. So you've got to score a winning run. You've got one run. And a guy's halfway down the crease before you've even released the ball, which gives him an advantage. He's technically out of his crease, so why not be able to stump him? Because But but there's always that underrun. You warn the player, hey, if you go out of your crease, I will take the bails off. And I think that then is fair enough. If cricket don't like it, just get rid of the rule. Just ban it. Say so you can't go out that way. But didn't they just change the rules recently? What 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 did they change it to? I what? think it was because it was seen as like an unprofessional 
dismissal, but I think they've kind of cleared it now, so it's all it's okay. And then they had the women's game uh, last week between England and India where the dismissal was used and helped India win, and it's kind of caused all this controversy again. Well, I always find, was that against Australia or England? Uh, it was England-India, that one. Yeah, that's what it was, yeah. If it was the Australians complaining, I've got absolutely zero sympathy. The country who, well, let's be honest, mate, as I said, Chopper Reed, Ned Kelly are national heroes, mate, and sort of sums the Australians up. And let's be honest, they're the last country that should be pointing the finger at anyone else when it comes to sporting integrity, even though we're owned by an Australian company. Um, but look, maybe, maybe, and I know that, I know the umpire is always looking for the umpire is always looking for the no ball from the bowler, but maybe this is where the third umpire is looking at a camera of the batter at the at the bowler's end, and they are not allowed to leave the crease until the bowler is in mid-flight or into their action, and if they do, then it's no different than a no ball, except it is the bowling team that ends up, or you lose a run, or uh, along those lines. Because I, I think that's the only way it can work. I mean, you've got to, you can't. I, I get the mancad thing, and that, as I said, it's morally corrupt, legally correct. But at the same time, you've got to have some boundaries around the batsman leaving their crease too. What's to stop them from walking halfway up the wicket? So, so the rule is, it says apparently running out uh, from the nons, apparently it has been moved from the un- unfair play section of the rules to the run out section. And the reason why I brought this up is because there was a dismissal in the women's game and people were in uproar going, yeah. oh, I read it? about it on the BBC, yeah. But if it's a rule, then you it kind of have to go by it. But the, all the people that seem to be saying that were the same ones that were going, oh, but the referee in the All Blacks Wallabies game was saying that the call that he made the right call about the time-wasting call. And it's like you can't have it for two different no, sports, no, two you different can't. rules. No, that's the, right. The, the people that are saying to the, about the All Blacks game going, referee was right, and now they're saying that the cricket rule is wrong, no. even though according yeah, yeah. to the rules, it's you, right. You can't – if you're going to have a mentality, you go, well, hang on a minute. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to interpret the rules, and the rules can be open to interpretation when it suits me, but when it doesn't suit me, the rules have got to be black and white. If rules are there and you think they're black and white, then you need to adopt that philosophy across all sport. But you know and I know, mate, if that rule had gone the other way with the All Blacks, we would have all been jumping up and down. We would have been complaining about the French. We would have been bringing up the British and Irish Lions from 2017. And we would have been going all over it again. What is it with, what is it with, um, you know. It's us against everyone. Yep. But it didn't, you know, and Ian Foster jumping up and down saying, well, you know, he warned them enough. It had gone the other way and Ian Foster was on the back of another loss. He would have been, yeah, he would have been. Look, everybody's hypocrites, aren't they? Uh, if you do want to find the program, have your say on this. The man cad, this running in and instead of releasing the ball with your bowling action, you basically come all the way through, keeping the ball in your hand, and you run the batsman out because they've left their crease at the non-striker's end. There's a whole lot of things in sport, isn't there, where there's some unwritten rules that are not actually rules, and it's this whole thing of sort of... Um, Morally correct, no, legally correct, morally corrupt. It's a bit like in the Tour de France, like the last stage along the Champs Elysees is, is is more of a, it, it's more of a, what's the word, um, a celebratory stage. It's, you ride along, the yellow jersey, the team, they get to celebrate it. It's more ceremonial. And then once you get into the Champs Elysees, the bike race starts and you have a crit and it basically ends up in a sprint finish. It's sort of an unwritten rule that you just simply don't attack 
the yellow jersey on that final day. I'm not sure what the ruling would be if it came down to a second or two seconds. But there are just some unwritten rules in sport. What are the unwritten rules? What are some other examples? Because sometimes the law is an ass, isn't it? There's always going to be sometimes where a rule is written with the best intentions, but there's always going to be a circumstance where suddenly that rule looks ridiculous under those circumstances. But they're often the exception to the rule, not the rule. There's a lot of rules in that piece of editorial, wasn't there? I'm probably confused myself now. Uh, Twelve and a half minutes after 10, 0800 150 811 is the number. If you want to continue the discussion, um, feel free. Dally M, Player of the Year, who gets that? In the NRL Grand Final, who wins and why? Oh, I'm Parramatta. Um, I go with my man Albert Grammar Boys and we've got a Saya Papalihi in that side. 13 minutes after 10. I tell my kids often I sort of pretend I can sing and I can't and then all the friends come around and I go, hey kids, you've got to keep my secret. Make sure you do not tell anybody else how good a singer I am. They want me singing at the school and of course I'm awful. And then every time I see the kids, have you been keeping our secret? Do you remember those American singing shows where they have when they sing in front of the judges and they go like, oh yeah, you're going to be good or no. Nah. American Idol? I, th- I think yeah, so. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not much of a, a telly watcher, but uh, I, could, I could imagine, I, can't, I think it's Simon Cowell, the, the really grumpy Brett. Yeah. Just like, I could imagine him listening, listening and he's just going to go, no, no. Absolutely no. not. And then I'll go... Can we have a verbal discussion, though, please? <laughs> and Simon, I disagree, and you can phone me on 0800-150811, Simon. Now, actually, uh, Adam Lambert, I remember watching that season of American Idol years ago, and he was just incredible, unbelievable talent. And then, of course, now he is the lead singer for Queen, and it's it's interesting because, I mean, how do you replace Freddie Mercury? And yet, he, he he's never made it. He's never ever tried to be Freddie Mercury. He's never tried to replace him. He just simply says, "Hey, it's Queen and Adam Lambert, and I'm here to sing Queen songs and hopefully enjoy it." But he pulls it off, and he's and even the guys in Queen go, "Mate, he's and and I don't disagree." And I listen to a lot of music. He might just mind you. I, I like this um, Paolo um, Natini. Natini. But he might just be the best vocalist on the planet in LA in terms of his range. What that guy can do is remarkable, mate. And so there's a lot of criticism over those music shows. But let's be honest, some very, very good talent never makes it. And some really average talent because of the way a certain person looks or a certain style end up making it. So why not have those talent shows to discover some talent? I mean, you can get discovered in a hundred different ways, can't you? I remember was it NXS? They they never managed to find a, a new singer, and they tried quite a few different guys. I think one of them was a Kiwi from memory as well. And they came out with that song "Pretty Vegas," which was a really cool tune under that um, guy they briefly had, but very hard. I mean, few bands have done it. Van Halen did it with Sammy Hagar. Mm. Um, Queen. I mean, it'll never be Freddie Mercury. They know that, but people are t- they're doing stadium tours because of this guy, so they're still selling out eighty thousand seat stadiums, sixty thousand seat stadiums. And so I think, I'm just trying to think, you go back to um, Black Sabbath when Ozzy Osbourne stepped out and Ronnie James Dio stepped in and arguably their two best albums with Dio on vocals. What other bands have, ACDC have pulled it off? But not every band does though. Oh, I know, very hard. I mean, you can replace a guitarist, but you can't replace a sound sometimes. 
and vocalists clearly, you know. What about, Leonard, greatest... what about Leonard Skinner to an extent? Yeah, and they've gone through their, um, they've gone, you know, it's been turned over, turned over, turned over. Yeah, yeah, not convinced. I saw Leonard Skinner in New Plymouth back in the 1990s, actually. Oh, actually, I just see, I just see um, on Netflix, and you should watch it because boy, they're talented, John Fogerty, but that Credence Clearwater, wow. You know, the space of two years, what those guys came out with is remarkable. It's really, I haven't. I, I, I was going to watch it last night, and I just needed more time. And I thought, no, no, I'm not going to bastardize this. I need to have some clarity, and I want to watch it because I love watching my music documentaries, even stuff that I'm not familiar with. I watch them and go. Man, I really enjoyed that. Man, those guys are really cool. Those guys are really good. I didn't know this. I didn't realise that was as popular as it once was. I might be a bit biased in saying this, but my favourite uh, kind of musician, uh, well, there was a one kind of documentary film on it, but it was more the books, was the Jimmy Barnes ones, the working class boy and working class man. Very fascinating. I sense that with the music that you play that you're a big Jimmy Barnes fan and you're allowed to be. And I just think but Jimmy Barnes is great because Jimmy Barnes, you feel like you can relate to Jimmy Barnes. You know, you feel like he's the guy in the pub you could have a conversation with. Where sometimes when you become such a big star, like an Axl Rose or a Mick Jagger, you never feel like you could actually. You, you, they're just almost untouchable. It's um, when he had his documentary, it started off in Glasgow, and he was kind of walking through like all the. Uh, the, the council housing and all that, like where he kind of grew up when he was younger. And I remember showing that to, to my nana and she was just like, I, I remember it being exactly like that, but she was in uh, Aberdeen. Uh, but and, and it's quite it's quite fascinating when it was just seeing that connection and, and you could just see her like, just like the reminiscing hmm. going on. But uh, his, his, his books or his film, if you haven't seen it, the ones I highly recommend hmm. you check well, see- out. See, when Bon Scott died for ACDC and they approached Brian Johnson, right, and I was listening to this on BBC World and Brian Johnson was asked to do the Back in Black album and he actually came up with, um, um, what's the famous song, you know, um, not uh, Back in Black, but um, uh, she was the best damn woman that I've ever seen, you know, she kept a motor clean, da-da-da, what was the song? Um, Anyway, their most famous song and he sort of went and did it and wasn't sure whether he'd get called back or not and the album album comes out and he goes and plays it to a mate and his mate says oh it's too fast da, da, da. and of course it became the biggest ACDC album you shook me all night long and it became the biggest ACDC selling album of all time and you know the next minute this guy and, he, and it was interesting he said I was from Newcastle and he goes and I make and I become this you know I become the lead singer for ACDC and we're selling out concerts around the world he goes but I was still just the same guy from Newcastle he said but I'd walk into the pubs you see, they just had this attitude towards me where they're like, oh, here he is, Mr. Big Time, Mr. Rockstar. And he goes, it wasn't like that at all. And he said, that was the most disappointing thing. That lifestyle suddenly stopped for me. And all I wanted to still be was the guy in the pub. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for. Exactly. But uh, lots of these guys do have great stories. and mm. uh, Often full of adversity too. Yeah, totally. 24 minutes after 10, you're listening to SENZ. We are going to bring you an interview Next on the program, next on the program, uh, yesterday in the United States, the Memphis Grizzlies had their media session, their open day for the media. Of course, Stephen Adams playing for the Memphis Grizzlies, a team that could potentially go the whole way. Remember, they lost in a game seven, didn't they? They lost in a game seven to the Golden State Warriors, who ended up winning the whole thing. Stephen Adams, not controversially um, 
for the first round of the playoffs, didn't really play a lot, came back in for the second round of the playoffs because in the first round of the playoffs, who were they playing? Didn't felt that their style didn't really suit Stephen Adams. Anyway, uh, absolute rock star in Memphis. I was bumped into some people when I was in Alabama this year. And they were from Memphis, and I was starting to talk about Stephen Adams. He said, oh, Aquaman. Yeah, everyone knows the Aquaman. I sort of said it more with a southern drawl, to be honest, rather than a Californian accent. But, yeah, amazing how big Stephen Adams is in the States. And a lot of people know who Stephen Adams is, man. Remember, there's only, what, 30, is it 30 teams in the NBA and only 12 on a roster? How many kids play basketball? Stephen Adams comes out of Road of Ruins in one of the starting lineups and one of the best teams. Oh, yeah, but it's not rugby. Who cares? And it's not cricket. Who cares? And it's not rugby league. Who cares? It's not netball. So who cares? He shouldn't get a hell of a recognition. He's done nothing. And he doesn't have lots of Instagram followers. Unbelievable. (laughs) Anyway, we'll take a break. We'll come back with Stephen Adams. Am I starting? I don't even know if I'm starting, mate. Did coach say this? Oh, well, shit. I I wouldn't assume it just yet, mate. I still got to earn my spot. You know what I mean? So, shit. But if I were to be... Um, I don't know, yeah, it'll probably be the same stuff, man. Like, it'll probably be, like, rim protection type thing. Um, similar position. I really don't know. We have to see how our training camp goes, to be honest. If you ask me in a couple of days, I'll have a better pulse on it, mate, you know? Don't know what that was. Sorry, mate. It's inappropriate. Steven, as far as... Right here. Fuck, sorry, mate. <laughs> as far as uh, also filling back in for... Jaron, is there anybody in particular you've seen in these weeks, you know, leading up to training camp uh, that are bigs, whether that be Santi or any of the rookies that have impressed you so far? Um, yeah. Yeah, they, they impressed me a lot. Um, a lot of different players. But, again, mate, they don't have to impress me. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, old mate, old coach. They have to impress him. So, yeah, we'll just wait and see, dude. Whatever it is. Well, what's good about the system itself, though, is that you know you could kind of move guys in and out, and the system seems to run quite fluidly, um, both offense and defense. It's quite special. Uh, well, that's what we saw last year. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I don't know. Is that good enough? Yeah, it's good enough. Okay. <laughs> it's good enough, right? Yeah. What's up, uh, Stephen? Um, what what one thing did you work on this uh, season to try to uh, improve? your play this season as well as the team play? Um, worked on the old body, mate. Trying to get the old six-pack. Um, still non-existent, mate. Yeah, unfortunate. Um, but, yeah, probably, yeah, just like free throws and stuff, touches around the basket, rolling, stuff like that. Yeah. Shot some threes, mate. Yeah. Everyone's shooting threes in the summer, mate. Yeah. I don't know. Just the... Just the status quo, bro. Hey, Steven, just curious, I'm right here, to your left. Bro. Sorry, bro. What's up, bro? Um, the, the number six that you guys are wearing on a jersey this season, commemorating Bill Russell and everything that he's meant uh, to the NBA, what was your sort of – how much knowledge did you have about Bill, um, you know, growing up and, and getting involved in basketball, and what have you noticed about his legacy since you've been in the NBA? Yeah, I mean, I mean growing up, I just – I don't know much about NBA basketball in general. But, you know, just the dude just doesn't lose. You know, that's, that was the main takeaway. He just, dude's just a flat out winner, you know. Even just um, being a part of the league now, 
just a just a key piece in terms of development of basketball and the NBA itself. You know what I mean? Just one of those, just the yeah founding fathers type thing. You know. Hmm. How how different does it feel when you're on a team coming off the type of season you guys had together? I know it was probably a little different for you last year because you were brand new, but how different does it feel when you've accomplished what you guys accomplished, but also, you know, obviously did not get exactly where you wanted to go? It's a funny way to put it, mate. Um, yeah, I'm not sh- just speaking in general, like the boys, eh? yeah, overall. Um, yeah, I'm not sure, mate. I mean, the main thing, the main take, I'm not sure how they feel necessarily, but it probably shouldn't feel too good because, you know, it's one of those joints where you, you have that goal and then you kind of fall short. But the biggest takeaway is that they, that everyone here has the experience of the playoffs and what it takes to be in it. It's hard to explain. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's hard to explain, like, the feeling and the level of focus and discipline that it really takes to win these games. Um and the, yeah, in the playoffs. So it's good to have those ex- experiences, especially for such a young group. You know what I mean? It'll it'll pay its dividends um, in their career for sure. Um, each and every one of them. Um, so overall feeling is it was more just excitement, um, determined, and yeah, just ready to take on the challenge. I think for the boys. You know what I mean? Um, can't take too like we'll take some stuff from last year, but again, we have to approach this year as like a completely different league. Every other team's gone better, different lineups, whatever, different style of play, shit like this, you know what I mean? So our main our main focus for this year it should be just like day to day. Can't really get too far ahead of ourselves. We have to just focus on the day. Okay, what do we need to do to get better? Blah blah blah, see trends and just kinda of make adjustments from there. Really open minded because you really don't know what the league it's going to be like this year. They might ref something different. You know what I mean? You just have to be ready for all of it and then still try and get the results. Yeah. Steven, Ray, saw, saw you shoot some, some three-pointers this, this offseason. Yeah. Uh, is that something? I didn't miss that. You see those? Yeah, you made like yeah, six in a row. Shit. Yeah, you should, lucky you didn't put on the bloody full video, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I was there since five in the morning. It was three o'clock. <laughs> Should we expect you to to shoot three pointers in in the regular season games this season? No, I wouldn't say don't expect it. Um, just just be surprised and cheer me on when it happens. You know, don't expect it though. It's more just like holy shit, <laughs> what the, what's going on? Yeah, just treat it like one of those things. Hey, Stephen, uh, before last season, not many people expected you all to do what you did, 56-26, second round of the playoffs. But this year, those expectations are there. Uh, talk about the different mentality you have and the squad have because has because it is different going into last season because a lot of people are expecting you all to do what you did last season, if not excel it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know how to say this nicely, mate, but, it, you know, any expectations from any outside source, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter at all. You know, I mean, it doesn't affect the team and our expectations and what's so like. We don't really kind of sit there and like, yo, we got to be, you know, win every single game. It's like, yeah, it's nice. That would be nice, but that's not realistic, really. So you kind of have to deal with more of the process on, like, you can't really, can't really focus too much on the outcomes. You just have to focus on the process to get the favorable um, outcome that you want because then that's what's going to really carry you on to, like, 
all the next levels and whatnot, right? So, you know, ups and downs in the season, just like every other one, man. Um, and yeah, as long as we just maintain our own expectations internally, then it's fine. Expectations outside, mate, they're a bit too, I don't know, they're unreliable. You know, you should shoot 100%, you should win every game. So, shut up. You didn't say that, did you, mate? I'm telling yeah. you. No, no, just, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, oh, you give it up, big <laughs> I think with COVID, you didn't have the chance to go home for a while, right? Uh, yeah, back mate, to New yeah. Zealand. Did you make it back this summer? And if you did, what'd you do? Yeah, made it back. Um, yeah, it was bloody awesome, bro. Um, got to see my family, see all these yeah, other big people, see the New Zealanders, my friends. Went out, did a little bit of fishing. Yeah, just enjoyed the country, bro. Went back out to the farm. Yeah, it was it was big in the photo because I put it really close to the camera. <laughs> so they're like, hold it up, and it was like, thing, and it just grew bigger. So it just it looks good on the photo. It wasn't that big though. It wasn't that big. Parliament to Papa Mount Victoria, the cable car, the bucket fountain, and the Saturday. Is eighteen minutes away from eleven with you for another one of talk time. We've got around about just thirteen minutes. So if you do want to phone the program, oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one, you can text us here on double eight double three. Well, big was it an upset on the weekend? I thought pe- most people probably thought Joseph Parker would win his fight. He didn't. However. Um, David Higgins, who's been very much behind the scenes. I've got a lot of time for David, known him for a long time. I think he's a man of integrity. I just think sometimes you get tarred with that boxing brush. Well, you're in boxing, therefore you must somehow be corrupt. Um, But very, very successful guy. At 27, David Higgins actually brought um, Bill Clinton down here to speak. I remember interviewing David one-on-one, and fascinating story how you get Bill Clinton, um, former President of the United States, down to New Zealand. Um, Quite simple, really, and he explains it very simply. Anyway, let's hear from David Higgins. What are now the next steps for Joseph Parker? What did he make of it all? You mentioned there he's keen to get back in the ring. Obviously, I I had a brief conversation with him there. What can you tell us about that? He's keen, in, in his own words, to return before the end of the year. What are your thoughts on that? He wants Stillian White. He still wants Stillian White, who's called everyone out since their 2018 fight except Joseph Parker Dillian's been mouthing off everyone's name but hasn't mentioned Joseph I think it's four years since that lucky win for Dillian and not saying next but whenever Dillian's ready the the fight is there to be made and obviously Joseph's now the next fight's with boxer British Sky Sports and I think Dillian has some good relationships there so Maybe Dillian will, you know, come forward. Who knows? You've shown a willingness, I mentioned it earlier in the interview, to go from out of the frying pan and into the fire, so to speak, with Anthony Joshua to Dillian White. Would he be willing to go straight into the Dillian White fight or do you think maybe a fight in between there? I know he'd be willing to. He he would be. Not saying that's what will happen, but I'm sure if the terms are right, he'd be willing to do that. A lot of the talk going into this fight was around, you know, Joe didn't need to take this fight. Both Joes didn't need to necessarily take this fight. Now the dust has settled. Any regrets over stepping in there with Joe Joyce? Zero regrets. Um, If you're going to devote your early part of your life to being a heavyweight boxer, your, your goal should be to be world champion. Otherwise, why are you doing it? And, you know, trying to win the heavyweight world title in boxing is like trying to climb Mount Everest before modern equipment. It's hard. Hardly anyone does it. There's a lot of risks and pitfalls. Um, But 
you know, that's why you're in the game. And so Parker had a choice to pad his record against journeymen or bums or take easier fights or go for the doctor, go for the prize, go for the world title and get a better payday. So what Joseph Parker did, he chose the risky option to go straight, try get back to mandatory and and the bigger payday, but with risk. And I think that's worthy of respect. And I think if every boxer had that mindset, every card would be a cracker and it would really shake up the rankings and you'd have a proper top 10 of the actual top 10 instead of the politically voodooed top 10. You know what I mean? Um, so I we have no regrets and that mindset will be with Joseph for his career. Test yourself. What's wrong with testing yourself? Joseph Parker tested himself against a guy that was formidable and proved to be a brick, wall, a moving brick wall. And he came up short. He gave it his best shot. And, and he went for the title and he got a good payday. And I think a lot of people that really understand the sport will, will respect that. And I don't think Joseph will have lost many fans out of that at all. It's, of course, not the first time we've seen that in Joe's career either. He, of course, lost his heavyweight title to Anthony Joshua. His next fight was another high-risk fight against Dillian White. Was that something that, you know, you'd had a conversation early in his career? Look, we're going to go for the big fights, we're going to take the big risks, or was it just kind of a case-by-case basis? No, it was It was the philosophy from the beginning that we'll be hungry, take risk early. When he did win the heavyweight WBO heavyweight world title against Andy Ruiz, he was the fourth I think, youngest in history to win it. And it was just take the opportunity. Then when Joshua came, took the opportunity. Because if you don't take the opportunity, you might never get the opportunity again. You might lose to a bum or a journeyman. You might get an injury. When the opportunity comes, you take it. You, yeah, you risk losing. And then you take the opportunity again. And, um, you know, guys, there's a reason why guys like Derek Chisora can still pull a seven-figure seven payday similar you know and are respected um and he's got a name he's got profile around the world fans love him because he's taken opportunities and he's taken risk um and then you get other boxers that treat it like a game of thrones and voodoo and try plot the perfect course and take 15 years and by the end of their career they haven't fought the big names it passes him by i think when joseph parker looks back on his career He'll be able to say that he took all comers and against some he won, against some he came up short, but he tested himself. He's already had the world title once. Hopefully he has it again. He, he's still only 30 and there's a lot to learn from last night. Speaks very well, David Higgins. I like the philosophy. Um, very, very good on his feet. You've got to remember, this is a guy, mate, who came out of only hunger, stayed home. And he negotiated and worked his way to the top table in terms of boxing promotion with Joseph Parker. There's a lot of truth in what Joseph, what he says there. And one thing that I think boxing needs to learn from, and that's mixed martial arts, that is from the UFC. The UFC decide who's fighting who. You don't stay at the top very long because the best fight the next best. Or the best fight the third best. But you cannot manoeuvre around. You cannot just dictate and look for the perfect record. Oh, we all want to be Rocky Marciano. We all want to go through unbeaten. You know, Joseph Parker, what, his third loss in his career. Mixed martial arts, very few fighters finish their career with just three losses. In fact, there's a lot more for the reasons that David Higgins alluded to. Let's hear from Joseph Parker. I felt that 
you know, the training camp was great. Um, a few things happened, but I felt good in the night. There's no excuses, really. You know, it is what it is. And he was a better man, but it just means I have to go back and keep learning, keep working on things, and then lock in another fight very soon. I want to keep busy. And I guess that the long layoff wasn't the best, but also he had a long layoff before he had the fight with uh, Hammer. So no excuses. It is what it is, and he won. A lot of people are talking about that right hand that you landed in the fourth round, that overhand right that bounced off his head. What is it like as a fighter when you land a shot like that and he keeps coming? Listen, when you land a shot like that and he keeps coming, like, landed a good shot and he kept coming forward. Like, nothing happened. <laughs> and so, um, listen, credit to Joe Joyce. He can take a punch. There's nothing really I can say bad about him. He took a good punch. He gave a lot of punches back and he put the pressure on. And that was his game plan and he was able to execute it better than I executed my plan. So that's it. Second half of the fight, it did get tough in there for you and you showed unbelievable heart. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's, that's come out of the fight is just how tough. A lot of people talking about Joe Joyce's chin and Joe Joyce's resilience, but after the fight, it's yourself. People talking about you taking the shots and showing that grit and determination to stay in there. As a fighter, as a proud man that I know you are, what does that mean to you to have people say that about you? Uh, just a thanks to everyone for their <clears throat> kind words. Um, it would be better not to take the shots and, you know, to avoid them <laughs> and to try try get the win. But um, at the end of the day, the fight happened the way it did. And, you know, thankfully I was able to take those shots and there was one good shot that landed and changed everything. But um, I appreciate everyone's kind words. You've been in there with Anthony Joshua, Andy Ruiz, Dillian White. Where does Joe Joyce rank among those guys? Uh, Joe Joyce in terms of what he showed last night right at the top. You know, the pressure, the the punches, the um, determination just to keep pushing. You know, um, like I said, there's not much more I can say about it. Just respect for what he showed last night. He's now the WBO interim champion. Um, he's, he's mandatory challenger for Alexander Usyk. Tyson Fury, yeah. your good friend, was ringside talking about a potential fight there. How does he get on against Usyk and Fury, in your opinion? Um, listen, there's no point asking me about Fury because... Yeah, listen, we're very close and I always back Tyson to win the fight, but be an interesting fight. And then with Usyk, um, because of Joe's size and just the relentless pressure, you know, obviously Usyk and Joshua was a different fight. Joshua didn't put on the same pressure that, that Joyce did against myself, but be uh, be interesting to see. Very interesting. Try and uh, skate through the last couple of questions. Do appreciate your time, particularly the the day after the fight. Everybody watching this is going to want to know what comes next for Joseph Parker. I mean, you've become an adopted Brit over here. We love having you over here. Always in good fights, always showing lots of value. I think it's fair to say your stock didn't drop at all last night. When can we expect to see you back in the ring? And who do you want to box? Listen, I think as a fighter, and I take myself, for example, the, the, the busier I am um, with fights, the better I get. And then when you have time, a long time away from from fighting, you know, sort of lose touch. And so I'd like to fight as soon as I can. Um, go home, see my wife and kids, recover and rest, spend some quality time, and then come back and see what's next. We just had David Higgins over here, of course, your longtime promoter, manager, friend, of course. Um, he, the name that he was talking about was Dillian White. You had that brilliant fight in 2018 where you almost had him in the last round. Is that the one you want? I'd love to fight Dillian White. If he's free and available and there's nothing locked in for him, I think it'll be a great fight. 
um, he's coming off a loss against Tyson, and I'm coming off a loss against Joyce. And I think if we can make it happen, um, it'll be great because the first fight was a close fight and a tough fight, and we can make it a more exciting fight the second time around. Last quick couple. Uh, you mentioned there about your family uh, going away, going on holiday. You told me briefly off camera what you've got planned. So uh, let the ID Boxing audience know what Joseph Parker is going to be up to in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to go home to New Zealand, see my wife and kids, pack our bags, and then want to go to Fiji. Want to go there and sit on the beach. I need a tan. <clears throat> I'm a Samoan. I'm a white Samoan that needs a tan. <laughs> and they're going to go Samoa for a bit, see my granddad. He's been waiting patiently for me. Um, see our family, the sons of the family, and just enjoy time away. You know, I've been away for a long time, and our family's been very patient, understanding, back home. And it would just be great just to relax as a family before school starts back again. Okay, well, Joseph Parker, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, whether it's in Morecambe Bay, Manchester, Vegas, wherever. Uh, always been a gentleman, always made a lot of time for myself, ID Boxing. Um, so thank you very much, and congratulations on a brilliant performance in, in admittedly a losing effort. Um, and we look forward to seeing you back soon. Uh, I will give you the floor now. There's going to be people watching this from the UK, from the US, from all over the world, Samoa, New Zealand. What message have you got for, you, for your fans, the people who are looking forward to seeing Joe Parker back in the ring sometime soon? Down there. Um, just very short and simple. Um, thank you all for the continued support. We're very grateful and appreciate it a lot. And I'll be back. After a good rest and time with the family, I'll be back. Yeah, really, really um, well said, Joseph Parker. Uh, you, you can't fault the guy for the way he conducts himself, to be honest. I mean, we, oh, he's crap. He, we, you know, we, we're so easy to put the boot into him, aren't we? Do you understand what's, how tough that sport is, how brutal it is, what the risks are? To be at the top table, man, you've got to still be good. A few people end up becoming heavyweight champion of the world, and certainly when Muhammad Ali was heavyweight champion of the world, there was no bigger prize in all of sport. Anyway, that is us for another night. Special thanks to Ben Francis, who's been producer extraordinaire. If you are travelling around the country, do take care. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure, and I look forward to having your company again at some point in the future. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.